This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. and welcome to an end-season episode of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matthew Stockton. Together, we will sequelize forever. It certainly feels that feels way, it, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. We're coming up soon on our hundredth bad sequel slash prequel. It's not a hundredth episode. No, 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 we're on 150-something at this, yeah. maybe even 160-something by the time this comes out. So. And five years. Yes, our five-year anniversary, very, very soon. A lot of milestones. Yeah, yeah, we're hitting a lot of milestones. Season 10 coming up soon. Very exciting stuff. And speaking of very exciting stuff, joining us is Tim Matum. You always sequelize at the same part when it's very beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) We do. It is very beautiful. Yeah, it turns really ugly real fucking quick. (laughs) Yeah, we're like, bring back the beauty. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, ladies and gentlemen... It's not a Patreon pick this week, don't worry. This is one we came up with. It's an interesting topic, and something I think we touch on quite a lot throughout our kind of, as you said, 150-plus episodes. It's visually striking films. Striker! 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 Striker. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very difficult thing to convey in an audio-only medium. Yes. The power of a visual medium. We're going to do our best, gosh darn it. Before we get to talk about visually striking films, gentlemen, we're going to have to describe visuals, which is going to be interesting. I hope it's still engaging podcasting for you all. <laughs> a boy attaches a wing to a dragon's <laughs> fin. That's, that's what's always that's the classic one in cinemas. right? We're yeah. Just yeah. Re- oh, yeah. Reading film scripts, basically. Yeah, they do that in cinemas. They, 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 it's the specific description they give you. Yes, exactly. Mm. But before we get to all of that, we'd love to say a little thank you to the wonderful people on patreon.com slash sequelizers that make these interseason episodes possible, mm. to make the bonus episodes possible. We have Patreon picks during these interseasons, and they make the main seasons even bigger and better as well. They're very visually striking in their own right. Aren't they just? Mm. If you'd like to also be visually striking, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. You can get ad-free episodes. You can get early access to episodes. You get exclusive merch. You get discount on merch. You get bonus entire interseason episodes during the interseason and bonus outtakes and other cool stuff during the main season as well. You get access to the pitches, so you can read along and click on like IMDb links to be like, who is that? The Matt cast in that film? I have never heard of them. <laughs> click on the thing. Ta-da! There you go. It's a nice little feature. We started doing that for some of our interseason stuff as well, as requested by the lovely people, by the lovely patrons. They're yeah, like, yeah. well, you do it for the main season, but you just did a Constantine thing. Can we, can we hear who you picked for your Constantine sequels? Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah, yeah, why not? So you can get access to all the pitches in written format as well. Some might say they're visually striking. (laughs) They're not. They could be. It's a visual component to a podcast. That's something unusual, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, Mm. why not? 
If you'd like to join these wonderful people, as I said, you go to patreon.com slash sequelizers, like these wonderful, visually striking executive producers have done. Josh Miles. Boys, good morning. Yeah, you gotta go home. There's cars coming through here. We got guests. James McDowell. No harm, no foul. No foul. There's a joke in there somewhere. Michael Belcher. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. Ex-killer. Josh van der Sluice. Bryant must have upped him to the Blade Runner unit. That gibberish he talked was city speak, gutter talk, a mishmash of Japanese, Spanish, German, what have you. Jonathan Firth Clark. Who are you? How, how do you know my name? Zenos. What's up, danger? Colin Thompson. What's up, danger? Philip Morgan. This is the end. Hold your breath and count to ten. And we have an interesting last two executive producers. A uh, brand new executive producer mm. known as Hyper Dude Man. <laughs> and a returning executive producer. Drum roll, motherfuckers. He buggered off, he had a baby, and now he's back. <laughs> Just when you think you're out, we pull you back in. Yes! <laughs> Welcome back to the executive producers, Mr. Stuart Main. Thank you, executive producers. Welcome back, Stuart, and welcome to the crew, Hyper Dude Man. We really appreciate your support. It's a fucking gang now. It is. There's ten of the motherfuckers. They outnumber us by a considerable degree. <laughs> they could beat us up if we if they wanted ah, to. My know. God, they control the board. <laughs> Matt's, Matt's been in a lot of fights. I've been in a lot of fucking fights. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could beat up Jonathan first. Clark. we'll be fine. I've been in a lot of fights. <laughs> <laughs> One, none of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I've learned everything. <laughs> well, if you'd like to build that gang even more and try and take over the show, please don't. But if you would do, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. Go up to the £30 or the £50 tier if there are any slots available. They usually aren't. They're usually full. But you can go up to the £30 tier. You get all the exclusive stuff. And you get a shout-out on the show as an executive producer. And as always, if you're thinking to yourself, I really, really, really want to support, but times are hard. And trust us, we know things are not great, especially <laughs> in Britain at the minute, so we know things are difficult. The patrons make the show free for everyone else. It's a exactly, really sound yeah. cool thing. Yeah. Um, and if you can support, that's great. If you can't, don't worry. Mm. Other people have got your back. Yeah. And if you want to do something but but can't support us monetarily, give us a five-star rating on your podcast mm. platform of choice, or just mm. tell a friend about us. Sit them down. Make them <laughs> listen to it. Yeah. Say, Force them at gunpoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been in a lot of fights. <laughs> <laughs> they've, all, they've all started with podcast recommendations. It's, it usually starts with, I think Kurosawa's overrated. You motherfucker! <laughs> I've been in a lot of fights. I've been in a lot of fights. <laughs> just, just people stopping Matt on the street and going, Oi, mate, you look like you enjoy a podcast. I've been in a lot of fights. <laughs> <laughs> Crack my knuckles. Oh, dear. Well, Matthew, Speaking of striking things. Yeah, speaking of striking, mm. let's talk about visually striking films, shall we, gentlemen? Yeah, cinema is, is fundamentally a visual medium. There are alternatives and there's things about, you know how music and sound play a huge part, especially in horror. Sound mm. is vital. 
But the truth is, the things you remember from a young age, and the thing that grabs you first, I mean, your ears are offended before your eyes, technically, but the thing you remember, arguably, is the spectacle, is the mm. visual. Is the I thing thought you were going to say the smell of the cinema. The stench <laughs> of rotting popcorn and maybe, maybe a fart or two. Ooh. <laughs> um, if no, you're lucky. No, the, the idea, I, I think if everyone's describing the cinema, like your, your, like your earnest memories, you think about like emotional beats and stories, you think mm. about like, oh, this is an amazing score and it drew me in. But if you think about it, what was the first time you remember going to the cinema as a kid and you think, I saw this, uh, some huge film. It's usually a big blockbuster or a Disney film, a big spectacle. Mm. And you go, it was the most beautiful, amazing thing I've ever seen. And that's mm. usually what people say when they fall in love with cinema. And it's, it's especially the trip to the cinema rather than watching it at TV on home yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's the fact that you're in that dark room, that mm. huge dark room, mm. and then there's just this rectangle of light in front of you and these stories playing out on it and these yeah. amazing visuals and stuff like that. It's such a unique experience. And yeah, the fundamentals of storytelling, as much as we can talk about script and dialogue and all those kind of things, the actual tools of storytelling is visual in cinema you know yeah. there's yeah. um i can't remember the name of it but there's a very famous theory that two shots in uh sort of compared to each other um will tell you vastly more than those same two shots in complete isolation mm. oh yeah, yeah. so if you yeah, if you good. if i show you a shot of an outside of a building and then a shot of a man sitting in a room your brain will instantly go Oh, that man is sitting in, inside in, that, that room. Is inside that building, yes. and that man is sitting there. Yeah, the transitional cognizance of like saying like, well, the cognitive yeah. transition of ah, this plus this equals this. Yeah, it's like, well, what? How did how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, it just seemed like the natural thing. Yeah, yeah, and you can do that all. You know, cinema started out as a silent medium. Yeah, yeah, its fundamental storytelling tools are all visual. Yeah, very much so. Especially when we started out with like silent films and stuff like that. You had mm. music and. Title cards. It. Yeah, <laughs> title cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dialogue wasn't even an audio thing back in no. the day. It was all about the visuals. It was all about what's yeah. happening it's, on the screen in front of you. It's the Norma Desmond line from um, Sunset Boulevard. We didn't need voices. We had faces. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Because you could pull like big men. And, and again, some of the most important moments in cinema have come through because of a performance or a background or a set. And you think like uh, the early silent film about Joan of Arc. And it was the one they're like, right, we're going to push in, really establish the close-up mm. and really establish how these people are not wearing the classic makeup as well. They're like, almost like stripped down normal. And it looks so real. It's like, it's too much. I can't handle this because I've never seen this before in such close proximity. Mm. And especially in those early days when so much of what was being created for cinema was based on plays and stuff like that because it was, yep. the, it was the easiest thing to go like, well, it's like this thing, but different. It's mm -hmm. like seeing a play, but the actors aren't actually there. We've recorded them, and now you can watch it over and over Less again. Less make-believe, because you've mm. got the actual scenes, locations, yeah. and you can move the camera and stuff. And yeah. that's, yeah, that's the thing, is that the thing that then distinguishes it from a play. A play, you're sat in the same place in the, in the audience, you're a, a distance from the actors. Maybe you're very sat very close, but you're still mm. in a static position. And the stage can change, and all those kind of things, and people can move around, but you're your angle on it is always the same. Whereas with cinema, you can get a close-up, you can get a medium shot, you can move the camera. 
you know, you can go from one to the other. You can track alongside a movement and all those create a different sensation as you're watching them. Mm-hmm. We touched on this in our musicals episode, talking about how you transfer that stage presence and the idea of taking something that is so, as you said to me, you've got that fixed view of you are sat there and it's happening in front of you and you have no choice about where you're sat or you can't, you know, fly about like we do now with like drone shots and all this crazy yeah. stuff we can do, you know, in the 21st century. Transferring that over so many filmmakers will take a musical and do stuff you cannot do on stage because now it is film. Mm. Yeah, You do those close-ups, like you mentioned, Matt, where you can't do a close-up on stage. That's mm. just not a thing unless they're coming up into the crowd and like in, yeah. Just, yeah. in real life. And having the power of camera placement and set design and costumes and all this kind of stuff going on and you being able to see those details close up and then far away and then from this angle or from a character's perspective mm-hmm. is fascinating. Like a visually striking scene I always think of and when you think of like this can only be done on film is the night vision scene from Silence of the Lambs. And I know I go on oh, about Silence of yeah, the Lambs yeah, yeah. so much. But the fact that we are in that moment as the darkness is just completely enveloping and there's just yeah. these little glimpses of of light and terror and fear and stuff like that. God, it's so terrifying and that it's a thousand times more impactful that we are actually, you know, there in that room from the evil person's perspective, you know, the the bad guy's perspective specifically, that it makes it a hundred times more impactful than just be like, oh, we just saw it from a distance as if we were across the room or whatever. Yeah, entirely. And I think that's one of those key points there. I think you're sort of touching on, Jack. Film, anything that is recorded, uh, this is true for TV as well, arguably, but uh, obviously started with cinema and things. It's transportive. The idea that you can be plucked out of whatever existence you are living in, wherever that is in the world, and be brought to a time and a place, fictional or otherwise, that you have not experienced. It is the ability to either see this world, our world, other worlds, fictional places, it could be anything. And yes, okay, the the performance uh, from the acting side of things and the uh, the, the, the musical connections can instill and uh, double down on that emotional impact. But at the end of the day, the first thing that hits you is, uh, in a script, for example, is like, right, exterior, you know, uh, sun-kissed desert, day, middle of the day. We open on this shot. That's usually how a script will stop because it will tell you, what, where are we? What time of day is it? What are we seeing? Because that's the first thing. Now, obviously, yes, we have music building into it sometimes as well. I'm, I'm going to stop touching about music, but that's kind of the key point here. Those things go hand in hand in the cinema. But the thing you see is supposed to tell you everything in theory. So it's like, right, I've got a, you know, a starry night sky. What is this? And then from that, you can pan up and you see the, like, the giant space station. You can pan down and see a woodland at night. You can see all manner of things. Or you can pull back and realize it's in fact a poster on a wall in a classroom you do so many things establishing association and visuals and trickery and emotional attachment through movement and it's fascinating but more importantly something about the image of it it, like being in an art gallery captures you hooks you and then it moves and it suddenly becomes something entirely different you go i don't know why i feel this way Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a thing that often when we're doing pitches and stuff like that, we'll have ideas for like character arcs and, and, you know, themes that we want to run through. But the truth is that we're just kind of reading those out. 
and stuff like that, emotional beats, themes that run through a film, they're often so much better when they are visual more than, you know, a character. You you don't want a character to just stand there and tell you how they feel. You know, that's that's the basis level of like, there's no subtext here. Just a person Mm. going, I am angry. And then you can Only have a cowards per- do subtext him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then you can have an, a, a performance where you know the character is angry, and then you can maybe you know find ways of layering that with emotion and stuff like that. But the the best stuff is always expressing it through the visuals yeah. and establishing things like visual motifs. You know, these repeating images or or, or types of image or mm. um, an association. Oh, you know, every time you see this character, like the Godfather, every time you see an orange, yeah, uh, someone yeah. dies, you know, and stuff like that. And it, it, these interesting things that are impossible in other mediums and that mm. lend so much to the storytelling. It's something I'm, I mentioned a few times when I write my pitches, I have a very, like, visual thought process behind it when i'm coming up with a scene mm-hmm. or adding a character or whatever i'm doing i'm thinking like okay so he's going to walk in the room say this thing and she's going to throw out a thing at him from across the room and that kind of thing and i'm imagining that in my brain in a very visual way probably partly to do with my background in like comics and stuff like that sure, and sure. kind of almost like storyboarding it in my head in that way and kind of coming up with oh this shot will set up this thing and i guess we are kind of restrained by the fact that we do have like here's 2000 words to convey this whole oh yeah thing that should be a big visual audio feast for the eyes and feast for the Mm. ears and all this kind of stuff and i always think about particularly like establishing shots like oh we're coming out with some sequel that's 20 years later we need to remind the audience that this place is really cool Mm. here's a big wide shot of this setting (laughs) and here's the character and it's just like silhouetted character in the background and all that kind of stuff I think it's fascinating when you hear directors and creators, cinematographers, writers even, talk about particular settings or particular characters that kind of capture their imagination. I know Dave Filoni has talked about this a lot with his Star Wars characters. Oh, yeah. He says, all the best Star Wars characters are recognisable by their silhouette. Mm. Whether that's fucking Yoda or Darth Vader Mm. or... You know, some, de- yeah, classic design one one, isn't it? Yeah, design one one for character design. If they've got a big hat or a big sword <laughs> or a particular coat or whatever yeah. it is, you want to be able to look at that guy and go, "Oh, oh, that's oh, that's that guy. Mm. Oh, she's walking down the alleyway. Oh my god. Oh, this is about to get good. Holy shit!" Or mm. they have some kind of visual cue, whether it's like a color shift or whatever yeah. it is. Mm. Like you said, those kind of visual motifs that let the audience in on the secret that perhaps people in that universe but the other people aren't seeing that but we know yeah there's that little visual cue to be like shit's about to go down mm-hmm. they just move this thing or change this thing or the lighting just changed so you know uh-oh something's about to happen mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's especially important for us when we're thinking about sequels because there are so many sequels we've watched where the cinematic language and the look of the film has changed completely from one film to the other. (laughs) Uh, And you just think like, surely that is one of the things that you pay attention to the most. And obviously, you know, filmmaking tools develop over time and stuff, especially if you've got a big gap between films. Make it all with CGI. Everything will be fine. Yeah. (laughs) But even something like, I think, and and obviously this is sometimes it's a function of budget as well and stuff like that. But I think of uh, the one that's, just leapt out to me just trying to think of it was uh, Braveheart to Robert the Bruce oh, like oh God, those yeah. films look nothing alike 
And obviously, I would have no idea it's anything to do with Braveheart if you didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so there's so much that you can do just with cinematography and how you mm. how you light a film, how what kind of shots that you choose, and you would really hope that. A, either a director returning to a film that they've already made or another director would pay attention to those kind of things and go like, okay, right, you know, oh, I'm, I'm making a sequel to this film. Oh, I, I just noticed that, you know, they use a lot of wide shots and a lot of close-ups and they very, very mm. rarely use a lot of mid-shots and, oh, okay, their editing on uh, on this is, is there's a lot of uh, static shots, very little camera movement. Okay, mm. now I'm going into making a sequel. I should probably try and keep those things consistent. Or mm. if I'm not doing that, I should have a reason why I'm changing it's those kind of things. It's a conscious decision to do it to subvert expectations. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's interesting and cool. And I, I think that's something we talk about a lot, and I, I know I talk about this quite a lot on the show as well, like my lack of understanding of like deep, cinematic language yes i don't necessarily know what the cinematographer is trying to say with this particular camera shot saying this particular thing for this particular Mm -hmm. character Mm -hmm. but there is a real kind of subconscious reaction to that and you can Mm -hmm. almost tell straight away especially as you said tim for sequels or a big long series of Mm -hmm. films Mm -hmm. having some sort of visual consistency you like oh you know we're in this place because it looks like this Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah you know you know the sky is red because it's the morning, so you know we're in the morning of this place, and here you go. You remember mm. that from two films ago? Here's this thing. I'm talking about Star Wars a lot, but like <laughs> yeah. Star Wars does that Star so Wars much. Star is visually striking. Yeah. Star Wars is visually striking. Take something like the um, the Holdo maneuver in The Last Jedi, yeah. a moment of silence and just visuals, mm. and just that kind of... It's playing with their expectations of seeing those... The opening shot of the first Star Wars film yeah. is a massive fucking triangular ship descending yeah. down the screen. And you're like, how big is that thing? And you see the thing it's chasing mm. like, oh, it's like 10 skyscrapers strapped to each other flying through space. This is a city <laughs> in space. And having that moment where this relatively small ship does the hyperdrive jump straight through a much larger ship and like cuts yeah. it in half. Mm. And the fact that they took away all the sound and it's just that hovering moment almost Mm. black and white Mm. silence Mm. just letting the visuals speak for themselves and because we've established this is how ships in star wars work visually this is how we convey size and power and structures of Mm. the empire versus the rebels and all this kind of stuff Mm. you subvert expectations like the little ship just exploded the big ship oh oh we Mm. we didn't know we could do that that's really cool and Star Wars is brilliant for that sort of thing. I know Lucas always talks about, you know, everything's a poem, everything's a song, everything rhymes and all that mm. kind of stuff. You have different characters going through different emotions throughout the decades. You know, we've seen characters grow all the way from the 70s and seeing Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher all go through these transformations physically. But they have these little visual cues, particular clothing items, whatever it is, moments where you think like ah oh, that's definitely han solo he's still han solo there that mm-hmm. makes sense mm-hmm. and even with different directors because most of the star wars mm-hmm. films are not directed directly by george lucas yeah, yeah. even though people credit him so much mm-hmm. you have everybody from who did the original trilogy three different directors the modern trilogy two different directors let's not, not talk yeah, about abrams yeah. um and then obviously the prequels by lucas himself he's on four of nine yeah, yeah. There, there's still that consistency there and people play with those expectations on purpose. They reflect and be like, oh, mm. 
this is old man Luke Skywalker, but do you remember that shot with R2-D2 when we mm. first saw R2-D2? Huh? You put them side by side, and you, as you said to him earlier, you have a shot to compare to another shot. You're like, oh, yeah, they're, in, yeah, they're doing the same shot. It's the same thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Now we're seeing R2 in a swamp, and now it's R2 in the desert. Oh, yeah, cool. And even if you're not, like, like I said, you're not hugely switched on and paying attention to that stuff, if you know the reference and you know Star Wars as a kid, there's something that little little thing ticks over in your brain. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, it's a little, like, satisfying endorphin release almost. <laughs> Yeah, and and almost like prove our point, as it were, perfectly. Is that Jack nailed it entirely right there? It's the Holdo maneuver. People loved the Last Jedi. People hated the Last Jedi. People were like, "Yeah, I can see the issues here." Back and forth. Almost everybody universally said, "But that shot was fucking cool." Mm, right? Yeah. Does it make yeah. sense? It doesn't. Don't worry about that. What did you think about the visual? It was amazing mm. visually, and that's what people. I mean, that's that unifying. Like we can all agree, it's look cool, right? It's like, yeah, it looked damn good. Mm. And that's, you know, Jack said about perhaps not knowing the 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 choices that directors and cinematographers are making. You're to, not actively conscious of that necessarily. You're, you're not yeah, conscious yeah. of it, but it happens on a gut level. And yep. then obviously if you become very, either very informed about art or your cinema and you're, or you're making it, you start to better understand like, okay, this is what a wide shot does. This is what a close up does. This is why the character has to enter from the left rather than from the right and stuff like that. But some of it so much of it for the audience is just instinctual and you kind of best recognize that kind of stuff when it's done badly mm. and you may not even realize it but you you can be sitting there going like i feel like this something feels off something feels know. off yeah. like yeah. this yeah. this and it and it can be because a film's script and the the story is telling you one thing but the visuals are telling you another not to keep shitting on someone we love to shit on but uh, you look at the King's Speech oh. uh, by, by jolly old Tom Hooper. And <laughs> so much of that, like the, the, the shots when it's uh, Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth in, in, his, in Rush's like, office lab. Yeah, study well, his, thing. His, yeah. his attic yeah. thing. His, yeah. yeah, his attic thing. They're shot and they're, they're shoving the characters in the corners of frames <laughs> yeah. and putting a load of like blank space. And it's... That is a camera effect. That is a choice of shot that is meant to be very off-putting. Yes, and it's like, but these two are bonding together and working on this. <laughs> like, shouldn't shouldn't we feel comfortable here? This is a yeah. this is a safe place where the where King George is getting to work on this thing that has been a, a shame for him. He should feel mm. supported here. Why? Why have you picked this shot? Like, what the fuck are you thinking yeah. about, Tom Hooper? There's a back um, and forth in that film, which is perfect. Tim's entirely right. There's a just a shot reverse shot, which means looking at one actor, then looking at the other actor. And what they've done is they've shot. And again, it's it's quite quirky and artistic. Like, that's quite nice. And it's like, does it work? I mean, that's not important. Um, so you end up having like Jeff Rushing the film uh, in the screen, and if you'd like a little, you know, rectangle with your finger and thumb respectively, like, okay, I can do that. That Ponzi director thing. You're looking around and trying to see a shot. Um, and he's framed in right at the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. And then you go to cut to Colin Firth, and he's right in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. It's like, right, but they're best friends, and they're bonding. And as Tim says, like, no. And they look further apart, further apart than yeah, they possibly And alone could, and isolated. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and daunted. And because you put them right at the bottom, the ceiling looks very high, so they look dwarfed by the whole situation. Mm. It's like, all these things are giving you certain cues that are being subverted. And it, it, as you touched on, Tim, that fundamentally ties into human psychology. Yes. Whether you're consciously aware of it or not, Having somebody being small on screen, or the opposite of that, shooting them from below and looking up uh, makes yeah. them seem taller and more powerful 
whether you're aware of it or not. Exactly, exactly. And we've been doing this for so long, and it's just the literally the perspective on something can affect how you receive that information so fundamentally. Just the fact that you are looking at that from a particular angle can, you know, there's the there's the brilliant video, and I know it's been done a million times, so I'm not going to credit the original creator or anything. <laughs> but there's the there's like a model, and there's a light traveling in a circle around oh, their face. From, yes. Then it's they yeah. start off like directly lit from underneath below their yeah, chin. And it's yeah. like, oh, it's the spooky lighting. You know, when you put a torch under your chin and do the spookiness. And then uh, the the spotlight goes round the side of their face, and they look like one way. And it goes over the top of them, and they look completely everywhere, and then comes round to the other side. And it's like three or four different faces you're seeing. And yeah, they will look yeah. older, then they will look younger, and their skin looks darker. And then there's certain you know complexion things going oh they've got freckles on that side of the face but not on that side of the face and the shadows are telling different stories about this person and oh they've got a scar on that side maybe they did this but the light's on the other side you don't see that scar and you can tell so much about a person by how they're lit and how they're shot just by fundamentally changing it six inches that way a foot across there a slightly different angle here and that transforms how the audience sees a character or a building or a planet mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. it is. I shared a, a Twitter thread recently with the guys, which was some shots from Simon Kinberg's The 355. Oh, God <laughs> oh, yeah. damn, yeah. <laughs> and Fucking hell. It was, it was a great thread that was just showcasing some true directorial incompetence <laughs> in terms of like the choices of shots and just stuff like Matt described earlier, shot reverse shot, um, where, you know, you you essentially you have two people having a conversation and you kind of imagine the camera is there as a third person perpendicular to them and to shoot to one of them you shift to the right and angle it towards them and to shoot the other person you shift to the left and angle it towards them and the camera seems to have moved barely like four degrees to go from one to the other and so there's very little distinction between the shots and yet they are presented in the film like shot reverse shot and you're like well then what what kind of if if the shots if the two shots are so similar why are you having them as this contrasting thing because it just feels mm. like oh we shot we set up the camera slightly wrong the next day and so now you know and there's, did, it, did it, you miss your mark did somebody yeah. forget to draw the x on the floor yeah, yeah. um and there's it, it's a very interesting thread i might have to stick it in the uh in the show notes or whatever but um yeah just a lot of shots from it and and again it's just like why are you making these choices like mm-hmm and and that should always, you know, Matt, you, you've directed many things. And I'm sure that every yes. time you do a setup, you're thinking, what what is this shot saying to the audience? And sometimes it's very straightforward mm-hmm. and it can just be shot, reverse shot. I've got to film this conversation. But you're still thinking, OK, what is what information is the audience getting from this? I actually have two simple examples for you. One from very very early when i was starting off and one from very recently on my most recent short film the earliest one is a short that you were in tim called dead dog people say to me like oh you keep breaking the 180 degree rule you don't much about films like no i did that on purpose you fuck that's the other side of it right you can you can do it on purpose to to break the rules i broke it in person it's like these is about a group of people that were um of soldiers who are lost and so to make you feel lost as the audience members, I kept breaking the minds of you. I was like, I'm feeling confused. Like, yeah, now you feel like them. And similarly, in the short film I did recently called Me and Reino, the about conquistadors, also about soldiers that were lost. But no, I, I, there is scenes of awful violence where they turn on each other. And I always thought, right, to show that they are alone and doing this to themselves and the sort of futility among the stillness of nature and everything else. And this is just like, 
you know to show mankind in its silliness so everything builds up to it it's very close very tight very personal the second some actual violence happens i pull the camera really 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 far back we cut to a wide where they seem small and insignificant and a little spat fighting stabbing whatever it is is far away from the audience so when you start to see the camera pull away you're like is this is this gonna get something bad it's like you start get that pavlovian it's only a short film but you still get that that that, that second thing it's establishing that connectivity in that language again yeah right? like we have some of that stuff built into us, like I said, from a, like a psychological perspective. Yep. And then you can, as a filmmaker, you can do stuff that goes against that on purpose. Mm. You go against the grain and go against, oh, oh, that person is shot from the other side. Why are they being shot from? But they're really small. You want to make them feel small, but you're making them seem large. And yeah. Oh, they're a small person, but they've got a large personality. So you're making them seem like this dominating figure on, on screen, even if they're not physically large you can make yeah. people even going outside like perspective shots on purpose like the lord of the rings stuff oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that in that sense but i mean like literally subverting expectations and like you said mm. matt throughout a film's runtime even if it's a short film you establish your own language for that sort of stuff so then yes, the audience yes. comes to expect stuff from you as a director to say oh no the camera's going back something's going to happen here or as yep. i said earlier this color changes or something happens visually where uh oh, shit's about to go down. Something's gonna happen. A Sergio Leone close up on the eyeballs. Like, there you go. Really tight. You're like, oh shit, he's gonna do something crazy. Yeah. yeah. I have a really stupid example for the one that you I, just ooh, said. Brilliant. Uh, I love from it. Elf. Oh fucking Elf. Ooh. Um, <laughs> when they have the meeting with Peter Dinklage, who's the the mm. children's oh, writer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He is always shot in a way that is very commanding and powerful. Yeah. Um, because he's meant to be intimidating he's and... a titan of the industry exactly he should be represented as such. Yeah. yeah you know and his height is irrelevant he, exactly yeah. yeah and and so even something as you know you would not point to elf and go like oh well there's a real example of like filmmaking craft even though it's a pretty funny movie mm. um some people don't like it you know yeah. whatever but but favreau is that kind of artist and yes. he can inject it into he, that film. Fav- favreau is a talented enough like craftsman that he knows like okay this is how we're going to shoot this thing because this is the the impact that I want it to have. Yeah. I'm just going to say one last thing before we pivot away to some choices and selections ourselves. I'm going to read up a list of films. We can see if we can get the connection. So they're all fairly recent. Okay. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Ugh. The Spirit. Ugh. Sucker Punch. Ugh. Jupiter Ascending. Ugh. I mean, amazing, but ugh. Australia, the Baz mm. film. Max Payne, oh. <laughs> The Bad Batch, yeah, okay. Only God Forgives. I'll stop there. I mean, they are all visually striking. That's it, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> they are all visually striking and bad. Yes. Um, visually striking doesn't mean good, necessarily. This is exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. You can have films where you have an actor who gives an amazing performance and mm. the film is shit. You can have an amazing soundtrack or score and the film is shit. Mm. You can have visually striking cinema that is just like some of the most beautiful shots you've ever seen in your life but the film is shit <laughs> and some people say that's my favorite movie it's like mm. but it's crap it's like yeah but let me show you these 10 shots mm. yeah you know a- 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 apropos of nothing in the external let me film. show you this poster in my living room of this shot like yeah giant yeah. like print like, like, yeah. that is art that is glorious art and you're like yeah and that's the thing that's why it, that's why again it's the whole for me and like you know no film gets one uh, less than one out of five because it got finished. But I have ended up saying, yeah, it's a two or three out of five. But it was crap. I was like, mm. 
yeah, but it looks astonishing. Mm. Imagine what this could have been like if the rest of it was this <laughs> good. Um, and we know, look, we've, we talked about this before. We've had films and sequels that have been hiring um, music video directors or people who haven't really mm. been for the craft, who create something that's visually fantastic. Mm. I think the visuals are there. The production design is mm. there. This is the camera movement. Everything about it looks on point mm. and yet it's crap because the story <laughs> and the everything all the other com- major key components aren't there but it can still look really good which when you're mm. an adolescent i don't mean in the sense of being young mm. i mean your exposure to cinema and storytelling in that adolescence you can say that was the best thing i've ever seen it's like that isn't an inaccurate sentence mm. and the other side of it you can have films that look like a big bag of shit, but are really well written and really yes. well constructed and well acted and stuff. And uh, like... Marvel films. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, 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 Billy Throwing Big Bollock after we did our MCU trilogy, Tim. <laughs> Fuck yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, mm. absolutely. You get directors with no strong vision or cinematographers that aren't particularly interested in telling like specific stories or whatever. Company people, just, just do what you're told. Just do it. your told, mm. point a camera at the things and things go bang, whiz, pop mm. and hope for yeah. the best. Mm. Yeah. And that happens Which a lot in modern cinema. Doesn't necessarily mean they're bad directors. It just means no. that is not what they're focused on. It might not be what they're hired to do. Yeah. You remember the Some... studio is telling them to do something. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and it can be a case that, you know, you can have a director who's just really focused on getting a great performance out. You know, they're very much an actor's director. They yeah, perhaps yeah. come from the theatre world or, or whatever. Um, and they're focused on getting a great performance and telling a good story. But they maybe don't have that visual sense, you know. Yeah, entirely. This is the thing. And 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 true cinema in the Martin Scorsese sense <laughs> of the word. Um, you know, is when you get all of those things in concert. I, I yeah, I think that's fair. That's fair entirely. So let's let's transition. We've got um an interesting myriad of picks and we've divided them in a very interesting way. Mm, yes. Um because we were obviously thinking like, well you could literally just list off a load of things. As you just did. As as I did. Um, he got he got his fucking honourable mentions. Look at They're me, cheap, you sneaky I, little fucker! I don't think there's any world where the spirit counts as an honourable <laughs> mention, a, a dishonourable mention. Yeah, I think that's that, yeah. that was a list of sorts, but it wasn't a good list. It was a yeah. bad list. Um, but but again, I think we we were talking about how we divide it up, and we came to some parameters that were very interesting because we could easily just go down one route um, and say. All of these his, movies count. Here's three Terrence Malick films. So, yeah. There you go. Exactly. So we gave ourselves a bit of a boundary to give us a bit of variety and also give us, you know, a bit, a bit of guidance. So let's talk about the first aspect. So should we talk about all three in terms of what they are or just as we come into the thing? What do you think? Let's... Overview or just straight into it? Let's go straight into it. I think from yeah. the first category, people will probably be able to get what one of the other categories is. But then the third fair. one will probably be a little bit of a surprise. That's mm. fair. And Tim, I like that, Tim. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so first category we could talk about is what we've dubbed as real, <laughs> i.e. Set, set on Earth in the real world. Yeah, you shot it. You shot it in a camera. You didn't. I mean, yes, you can tweak things in terms of color grading. You can do maybe, maybe possibly a bit of CGI. But the truth is, it's what you captured, what you saw, and you captured the best possible way. In the same way, you go on holiday and you think this picturesque scene or this moment with my family or whatever it happens to be, I need to capture this. And you go click in your old weird Kodak moment. I think I guess. But I don't know. Yeah, how old are you, Matt? I'm, I'm, I'm reminiscing. You're now. Winding on your little clink, 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 clink. Yeah, no, no. Whatever you want. I mean, a lot of fucking... our listeners have no idea what you're talking about. No, but phones makes noises as well sometimes. Point is, you you take your picture, you capture the moment, and you look back at it and think, ah, uh, no, that didn't get it. 
something something's missing something's not framed properly something that's my off. entire quote-unquote photography career yeah right <laughs> yeah it's oh it looks really nice oh it looks like a bag of shit on my phone <laughs> I, I, I don't know how i managed that yeah i was literally i was walking home the other day and i was like oh the man these sunsets are incredible and yeah i've had some really pretty like pink yeah, and purple yeah, yeah. sunsets recently took some photos on my phone i was like nah it's not not as good as on, yeah. on the phone as it is in real life yeah and the thing is some things are uh, we'll, go, we'll get to this later but the idea of manipulation where you're like this is bigger this is the instagram way of looking at things like yeah. oh it, it couldn't have been that beautiful but then you see something that is true and real and then you see a lot in, like uh closure films and mm. the way deacons tend to shoot things it's like mm. this is but real we'll talk about deacon <laughs> we'll, we'll, the deacon will come he'll have yeah, yeah well, of course <laughs> it's gonna come up big daddy deke <laughs> All about that big deek energy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, it's a pun, but let's just slide past that. That's the sequel to Cloudy with a Chance of Deacons. It's big deek energy. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah, there are times where you look at something and think, that is stunning and spectacular because he has captured the, I don't want to sound so wanky, but we're going to have to be, the true essence of beauty. Y- yeah, prepare for wank here, ladies mm. and gentlemen. This, this is the Brace wank. for wank. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's a teaser. Yeah. Get ready for big deek energy and wanking. <laughs> Anyway, so yes, the, the idea of capturing something and saying, this is something real on this planet. You could have seen this if you were there. And don't worry if you're not there because we've brought it to you. We said earlier about the transportative nature of things. And that doesn't necessarily always mean that it has to be beautiful because visually striking can be ugly as fuck. Mm. It can be fascinating. It can be what people find beautiful and isn't always the same thing. So what people find visually mm. striking can be, it's why we doesn't call this beautiful mm. films. Seven is a visually striking there movie. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. And it's like because of the detail, the grime, the dirt, the rain, the real lived mm. in things, it all feels like you literally can't take your eyes off it. Mm. And to know that this is something that has been captured in camera based on, you know, you can use practical effects like smoke mm. and, you know, lighting aspects to really draw that out. The lighthouse is completely, uh, the Robert Eggers film, that is completely mm. fabricated. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fictional idea of what is real in mm. terms of the lighting. It's not like an actual representation of real life. But fuck me, it's visually striking and a real mm. in-camera thing. It's just the lights are really cranked up. Whereas, again, you can have something that's, shot outside uh in a cityscape and think wow i feel dwarfed by these skyscrapers i feel humbled by this fucking you know open field that happens to be massively on fire and you think how did you get this so all that shit aside all that bit of a preface we have one pick each remarkably difficult not allowed honorable mentions apparently only the dishonorable mentions you dishonorable mentions i've had plenty I've had you've plenty. already pushed your luck stockton that's true should we go to you, Jack? What have you brought as your? Uh, what have you brought to a table? What have you brought to show and tell today? Well, uh, let's kick off with some big deke energy. Yeah, shall we? I want to talk about a film that's ten years old. Oh no! Oh fuck me! It oh is. no! I feel old. Oh no! I'm so old, and I'm younger sequelizer. Yeah, you're a you're makes a sprig you of a lad, but you're also you an old really withered old. man. I know. We're just all withered old men. He's just a little boy. He's just a boy. <laughs> It's just a little boy. And speaking of withered old men that also kind of look like sweet little boys, let's talk about Skyfall from 2012. Because James Bond is a withered old man that's kind of like a sweet little boy. Yeah, this right, was his middle period where he was mostly withered man. It's, yes. it's the weird thing where like he's been James Bond for like a few years and they're like, you're over. Yeah. You're, pa- you're past it, James. Yeah. You're 100 years old. Like you- Daniel Craig's like 42. He's fine. Yeah. He's in better shape than, like, everyone in this room. What the fuck are you talking yeah. about? It was 007 for about six months and then just, like, fucked up his knee and been re- <laughs> semi-retired ever since. It's the Dark Knight Rises thing of, like, oh, he yeah. was Batman for six weeks, Yeah, I guess. 
and then away for a decade, and then there you go. Yep. Uh, yeah. But Skyfall, I think, is particularly interesting to me because it really tries to tell its story visually, more so than, I feel, the other modern James Bonds. I haven't seen yeah. the most recent one, No Time to Die. It's decent. Yeah. I, I, Spectre killed all my passion for James Bond. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Skyfall really stands out to me, and whether that's like the house, the estate in Scotland, and all the incredible shots like across the moors and the mist and the the fires and all that kind of stuff, or if it's the blatantly obvious fucking oh it's the Aston Martin and all that kind of stuff, it it has such a visual interesting style to it, and and Deacons in particular brings this magic to it. And I know we talked about Sam Mendes before. We did a whole live stream about Sam Mendes and his career and some of his best yeah, films yeah. and all that kind of stuff previously. And credit to to Mendes working with Deacon as well. And it's this fascinating use of lighting and it, like darkness in particular to tell the different locations and the different periods of James Bond's life. And because it's such a like personal story to him, and you're going back to his childhood and all this kind of stuff, suddenly that house feels massive because James feels small because he's a child. Yeah. So they shoot it in this really big wide shot and you're like this house seems fucking massive oh my god and then we're off you know jet setting across uh is it um oh what's the what's the place in china where they go macau macau thank you yes when they go to macau and you have that insane glass building light thing that i still don't fully understand how that works (laughs) yeah which they tried to do in shang chi a bit and i was like all right mate (laughs) (laughs) no no skyfall is it deacons did it first let's chill out marvel Mm. come on um but yeah that amazing moment where he's like fighting the assassins off and there's this just this like wall of light and glass and reflections everywhere and Mm. it's this almost entirely silhouetted fight Mm. whereas you know we've talked about the 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 way that Bourne kind of infected all of the things around it in terms of action mm. in a negative way, they really pull the camera back on that shot and it is just these two silhouettes battling really close quarters, mm. really brutal because that's the kind of bond we've got at the moment. Or not anymore, I guess. Greg is moving on. <laughs> but you get, you get my point. Mm. That's modern Bond, right? You, you're going for that more realistic visual style. But Deacons does something interesting kind of... I don't know, adds this kind of twist on reality that I find fascinating. It almost feels, makes Bond feel a bit more mythological at times and Mm. a bit more like this. It's heightened reality. Heightened reality, exactly. Mm. Thank you, Tim. And then when you get to that bit where, oh, we're off off driving to Scotland, suddenly you're like whipped back into, this is shot in Scotland. Mm. Like, they couldn't have shot this anywhere else. This has to be, this is very clearly grounded and very realistic apart from the fact that it's basically home alone for adults <laughs> but also audiences are well most audiences can kind of guess or tell cgi they know yeah. it's it's it, to, to, to miss to quote fucking star trek generations Uh-oh. i've jumped this gorge like 50 times as a kid I can't remember how many times i can't jump it i was scared every single time except for now because i know it's not real sometimes you go oh my god cgi is amazing as we'll come back to later but as you say when the location's real Somehow it feels different. Yeah. And it's intangible because you go, can you explain it to me? No, because it's a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you, whether you get the shots of even something as simple as having Javier Bardem just talking basically to the camera as, as Bond is stood there talking mm. to him. And then 
doing the thing where he removes his faceplate and his oh, face yeah. just mm. drops down and not talking about the whole thing where Bond's villains are always disfigured and that's a mm. whole issue that misrepresents oh, yeah. disabled mm. people. Of course. Not talking about that, just the visual aspect of that shot and the mm. fact that you're like he's this really intimidating, weirdly sexy and sexual character <laughs> and then he does this, just this moment that reveals such a dark past of M as well. Mm. And you think like, oh, this sweet motherly Judy Dench character. And then he goes, oh, no, it's not all it's cracked up to be. And he doesn't go into details of like, oh, like she killed and betrayed mm. me and blah, blah, blah. He just says like, she left me and just removes the, the plate in his face. And because of the cyanide capsule, it all melts away and droops down and stuff. And it's terrifying and really mm. creepy. And it's that visual language. It's not him going like, oh, back in 1995, we went on this mission together and she betrayed me and mm. blah, 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 blah. He just does that moment. And that's all you need to know is that he is, you know, scarred both emotionally and physically just yeah. from that moment and that shot. Mm. Even something as simple as uh, sort of the production design in it, when you get to um, Sylvia's base on the island or whatever it is, and he's meant to be this very high t- he's a hacking villain you know he's done all these hacks to to mi5 and all, he's doing all these the hacks, mi6 him, yeah. And stuff. yeah he's doing he's on the interwebs um but the the moment when he's revealed the room the, the building that they're in is very old it's kind of quasi abandoned and he's got all these computer servers mm. but they haven't got anything on them they're just these stripped out almost kind of like skeletal metal frames with the with the stuff packed into them and it makes it feel old and you understand him as a relic of the past yes even yeah. though he's a very high-tech criminal and it's telling you all that purely with the the production design the visuals of how he's introduced and it it does a great job of making what is you know you have one aspect of the story where it's like oh this is a very contemporary thing where it's there's lots of yeah like computer you know chicanery going on and you have cube doing the whole I can do more in my yes. slippers with a laptop yeah. than you can do in two years in yeah. the field, Bond, or whatever. But it's still rooting it in the very visceral reality of the James Bond world and saying, like, no, this guy is smart about the new world, but he's also belongs to the, he, he belongs to the past like James Bond does. Yeah. I'm going to put you uh, on the spot now, Jack. Uh-oh. So just because it's about visually striking stuff, for you personally, is there something in Skyfall that you go, that shot for me is it. That's the that's the moment. Where it, oh God, that's amazing. Uh, obviously, we're going to describe something you know very visual here. For, unfortunately, for for audiences uh, in an ordinary capacity, <laughs> but um, just out of curiosity, uh, the house burning down and silver walking across the moors. Yeah, it's it's of a yeah, Scotland. It's a beautiful just, amber shot with just, black silhouette. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And it's the combination of like the smoke from the fire and that that is a the massive explosion, mm. of course. Being a Bond film, there's a big explosion, yeah, yeah. but they actually turn it into atmosphere rather than just big explosion and everybody, you know, mm. cool guys don't look at explosions yeah. kind of thing. Silver is limping away across the moors and like, you know, mm. we're at the culmination of this, this final moment for these, this trio of characters that yeah. are tied in together. And as you said, Tim, he's like intimidating and old school and modern and and is like the black mirror of bond like mm. reflecting back him and yeah. this is what could have happened if his relationship with him went in a different direction mm-hmm. and just him silhouetted wandering along and mm-hmm. amber is the perfect description of that lighting yeah. like yeah. the flames in the background and 
cat being caught by the mist. Yeah, it's, and it's, just so, like, it's so diffuse. Yeah. So diffusing. It should yeah, be it's warm and comforting, but it's terrifying. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's, he's walking yeah. towards the camera, yeah. not in a cool, cool guys don't look at explosions kind of no, way, no. in a I'm coming to get you, I'm going to get away with this kind of shit. And it's terrifying and brilliant. And uh, Yeah, I think yeah. it's very primal because it, 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 it's going to sound like it's an unfair statement, but if you're British or live on an island, um, <laughs> you get a lot of fucking fog. Uh, if you live in a coast, you get fog all the time. Um, it's, you know, if you want something to look very British, psh, fog everywhere. But, um, oh, it's a real pea super. Yeah. Um, and also smog in the past, but that was different. But, but the point is that you see a figure coming out of the fog. It's the same as seeing a figure in like Lawrence of Arabia in the, in this, you know, in, in the shimmer of the, of the heat rays and things. It's terrifying. You don't know if they're friend or foe. You just know that this thing is coming at yeah. you as a, as a shape. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a pretty good image, I think. And yeah. to, to cap things off for Skyfall and move on to our next pick, the transition into the intro sequence, and we've talked about opening sequences and credits and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Him being shot off the train and falling into the water. Oh. And yeah. he, the I like Skyfall isn't my favorite song or necessarily it's credit, credit I like sequence. I, I like it a lot. But the transition of him hitting the water <sighs> and the visual striking and yeah. the Obviously, those opening credits are renowned for being incredibly striking with all the, the guns and the women and all that kind of cool stuff. Yeah. But this is a somber one, and it re- you get all the fucking tombstones and skulls and stuff, and it's such a cool transition from live-action stuff to then this weird animated thing that is kind mm. of looming around and foreboding the, the yeah. kind of yeah. tone for the rest of the movie, and it all builds together beautifully and sets everything up really nicely. Nice. Perfect opener. Well Tim, how about you? What's your first pick? My first pick is very different. Okay, good. Mm. But Quantum equally... of Solace. Yeah. <laughs> There's a shot where no one ever. He walks out of a desert, goes on for a little too long, striking. <laughs> <laughs> um, my pick is uh, the Florida Project. Uh, oh, one. okay. Uh, by Sean Baker. Uh, directed by Sean Baker, I mm. should say. I do need a way <laughs> for reference. To piss on you? <laughs> yeah, I need to be a wee pissed on. in my face. I need some wee. Yeah. Yeah, I need some wee, not a wee. Uh, and with Alexis Zarb as the director of photography. For people who don't know, it is essentially the story told from largely from the point of view of a kind of, I believe she's seven years old girl who is living with her mother in a motel in Kissimmee, Florida, which is right near where the Disney. World, Disneyland, which one is it? World, Land, World in Florida, yes. Yes, no Disney World. It's right near where Disney World is, and her mother is uh, unemployed. She's just been, she was a stripper. She has quit her job because uh, she was, the owner was trying to force her into sex work. And it is essentially about this community of people who live in these motels in Florida in quite horrendous poverty a lot of the time but it is telling it from the point of view of this little girl and it's during the summer and it's her going on adventures with her friends and making friends dealing with the kind of the the motel manager who's not the owner but he's kind of the handyman around the place who's played by Willem Dafoe I'm something of a motel manager myself (laughs) (laughs) of course Um, and it is an astonishing looking film it is because it, it so much of these and and Sean Baker is someone who who 
very often deals with kind of poverty and the fringes of society and people who are in a very disadvantaged position but he doesn't film it in a way you you hear those kind of descriptions and you think of the kind of sort of Ken Loach misery you know everything 80s Britain yes it's yeah. all gray it's all concrete it's all, it's all grays shit. and browns and concrete and everyone looks bloody depressed but this is Florida <laughs> this is Florida and and he in in a lot of his films and especially in this one has this very just bright lens on everything and especially in this because you're seeing it through the eyes of a child and it's so good at getting that across in both the way the the, the film is told and the visuals of it and it really captures that way that children have of they understand the emotions of things and they understand the things that they, the things that they are kind of familiar with they understand more than we realize yeah. But then things that they don't understand, they kind of have no way of conceiving of. And it's, it, it's classic innocence, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And it really captures that split and it really captures that sense of a very childlike sense of like, oh, you know, we, we talk about the you know, nostalgia of like, oh, when I was a kid, the summer stretched on forever and everything yeah, was so great. Yeah. And you could just go wandering around and there was no, you know, none of these video games that these youngsters play now, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. and you know, obviously these are people who are dealing with poverty and they are, they don't have, you know, an Xbox they can sit down with, you know, they they have a, an iPad that gets pawned at one point, you know, and they are going around and they are asking tourists for money so that they can buy ice cream and they can't go to Disney World. So they go and find the kids, um, find some cows at one point and are just like, I couldn't take you on a safari. I told you I was going to take you on a safari. Yeah. Like, here, look at these cows. <laughs> It's the classic thing of, of narratively, a child doesn't tend to really know that they're in poverty. Yes, exactly. Because they're happy to be with the family. Yeah, they and it's all, it's all they know. Yeah. You know. It's when you get older, you realize things were shit. And you're yeah. Like, yeah, but you made it tolerable. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's such a kind of vague glow, you know, because it's, it's in Florida, which is already this kind of slightly heightened reality again. Yeah. Uh, you know, hell. the fact that it's That's so- just Florida in real life. Yeah, exactly. The fact that it's so close to Disney World, so you get a lot of this iconography. Mm, you know, yeah. you have a bit where the the mother has just like she's been trying to sell like she's got like some wholesale perfume that she's going around like fancier resorts and trying to sell to people. Yeah, and then she's just got like a bunch of it kind of stolen, sort of, and she's walking like, and she's like really in the depths of poverty. And she looks over and she's walking down, I think it's Seven Dwarfs Street or something like that because they're so close to Disney and all the street names have yeah. stupid names like that. There's a, there's a documentary about that, about how j- just outside, and same with California, some of the poorest areas are just next to theme parks. Yeah. It's it's insane. And 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 a lot of the people who work in theme parks yes. are actually in those positions where the yes. pay is so bad and... Because they're on, you know, weird shifts and stuff like that. They have to live so close to the theme parks and they're actually yeah. in this. And because then all the area around, there's very little residential around it because it's all been bought up to turn into motels. So they end up having to live in motels. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it's, all of this is based on very real stuff. And it's that Sean Baker kind of had been trying to make this film for a little while and was it after Tangerine was successful that he ended up getting yeah, the, yeah, yeah basically like, yeah. yeah um he 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 had the idea for it a couple of films before Tangerine yeah, yeah. but they wanted to you know be able to do do it properly do it properly yeah. essentially and he he involved real you know there's uh, 
the um it's mostly kind of non-actors or fairly unknowns who are starring in it willem dafoe is the only person who see in it and recognize yeah, yeah. really and you know there's people some of the kids that were cast in it were literally just like locals from around the way and he went mm. on and made sure that they've got like college scholarships and stuff off the back yes, of it and so yes. it, it, it's the kind of film that could if done poorly feel very exploitative but he seems yeah. to be someone who has a real stewardship and, and wanting to make sure that people who are involved in this have some kind of sense of authorship and 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 that it actually reflects you know yeah. that world yeah i think something we haven't particularly touched on and talked about lighting a lot for skyfall mm. i think what really stands out for me for florida project is color absolutely More than even, even so. because of the disney influence and stuff mm. you get these obviously the skies are so blue in florida <laughs> it's the happiest place in the world mm. and all that kind of stuff and you get the bright pink of the motel and rainbows yeah. in the sky and all this kind of stuff. And it's perfectly balanced with, like, like you said, when they go and see the cows, it's like, oh, that grass isn't as green as I was expecting it to be. Mm. That's kind of a bit muddy and a bit gross. And there's yeah. cow shit everywhere. Like, yeah. And it's the juxtaposition of, like, shiny, super clean, super bright and powerful popping colours and very a very clear decision from Baker and, and Zarb and the team there to really make those colours pop and kind of crank up the saturation at the right moments for the right yeah. areas and then be like, and here's all the horrible shit and it's kind of a bit mm. dull yeah. on purpose to really, again, build that language and establish the different sides of this world and all mm. that kind of stuff. The sheen that America presents itself and the reality behind it. and Yeah. And the fact that most of it is shot from, I think it's, I think it's six, seven, but the kid's height. Yes. It, it does the yeah. ET thing of like, We'll do it from her perspective. Yeah. And therefore, it suddenly becomes more bubbly. But that's part of that visually striking nature. The fact that it draws you in to not only that place, but that individual. Mm. How do you tell a film is visually striking by searching it on Google? You put the Florida Project. The first autocomplete is cast. The second one is stills. Because <laughs> people want to see yeah. screenshots and stills from that movie and get it as yeah. posters and phone wallpapers yeah. and all that kind of stuff. That's an instant recognition right there. Yeah, I mean, even the because the, the yeah, like you said, the the hotel in it is painted like purple and pink, um, and uh, it's called it's called something like the Magic Castle, which yeah. at one point like confuses these tourists who've come <clears throat> who think they've booked into the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, it's like I'm not staying here. This fucking shithole. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But the 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 title shot of the film is this like wall that has been like plastered and replastered and yeah, worn away at yeah. but is painted this vibrant purple and it's such a perfect kind of little microcosm of what the film is like where it's like this thing that has been fallen into disrepair and been strung along trying to keep going but is just plastered with this purple paint to be like hey it's here and it's colorful and it's great we'll just paint over the top everything will be fine we'll yeah fix that no just paint over the top of it it'll be fine yeah, yeah. um and like I say, it's it's that again that heightened reality thing that it it sucks you into the the mindset of a child, mm. um, and just finding the beauty in these small moments that you that that she appreciates because she doesn't realize the some of the like the real dangers that she's facing yes like yes. you know like they accidentally burn down a building at one point and mm. like her mum is in real real trouble and and kind of does a great job of basically being like this mum is a mess but also clearly loves her daughter yeah. like so yeah. much and is putting in like time and effort but is in caught in a situation 
that is in a lot of ways out of her control mm-hmm. and you know there's the systemic problems that are at work as well as her being just kind of a bit of a disaster in some ways <laughs> yeah. um and it's you know it's tragic when it ends um i won't you know spoil anything for people who haven't seen it but it's, it's quite a, a sad with elements of bittersweet but mostly sad ending yeah um yeah, but it still manages to be gorgeous and toe the line between that fantasy of childhood and that reality of this place um yeah and uh yeah i think it, it's it's gorgeous to look at it's so it just jumps off the screen and mm. you know for something that could be so dour and so depressing to ha- to then come along and put that lens on it is is great yeah definitely so would you say that there's one shot like you go like that's it is it the purple or is it uh that sticks in my memory i think the one that i think best represents the film is the rainbow over the uh the yeah, motel, motel yeah which they were they were going to do in cgi and then it actually happened and they were like let's shoot this now because it's about to save us about 50 grand Holy <laughs> amazing shit. yeah that's crazy. amazing yeah that's what we're talking about real stuff again is the idea that sometimes you you think how did you line this up yeah that's insane yeah but yeah crazy Matthew. Hello. Around to you. And now for something completely different. My choice is something I very rarely go for. And a film I kind of wanted to talk about for a long time on the show. Reference maybe here and there. But it never really has a chance to come up in the in-season discussions based on the subject matter of what we're talking about. But this is perfect. It's a 1992 non-narrative film called Baraka. Well, the origins of the Mortal Kombat character. Yes, yeah. about his yeah. arms or why they're spiky. Yeah, the yeah. the, the Tarkin Empire and that whole thing. And yes. Like, yeah. yeah. Tim knows. He knows yeah. more. Tim Kombat knows well. how he all got too well. His how he got his Mortal Kombat so sharp. Yeah. yeah. And it's visually striking <laughs> <laughs> because it hits Mortal you in Kombat. the face. Visually yeah. striking and 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 also kidney striking and yeah. spine striking. Yeah. And, and yeah, skull striking appendage straight no, no we're not talking about Baraka. oh terribly sorry uh no baraka is a 1992 film by ron frick who sounds like he has a fake name a child gives it does <laughs> it's ron, ron fuck but, frick. but tv edit version yeah uh he was the dp on uh koyana scutzi which is a very similar thing uh and he also directed samsara which is kind of a follow-up to baraka but yeah, a, little, a little less bit the point about baraka that's most fascinating is it is the quintessentially visually stunning film for me. It's the film that if you want to show off what your TV can do, you put on. They've recently just done an 8K um, transfer of Whoa. it. <laughs> because they shot it on IMAX cameras, basically, on 76mm um, back in the 90s. And they built well, they, these rigs. I was going to say, they invented yeah. the rigs to do, and the time-lapse exactly. cameras specifically for this project. Mm-hmm. And it's like... You look at this stuff and think it's every cool screensaver you've ever seen sort of thing. Every cool <laughs> background image. And the thing I think that's beautiful about it is it's haunting. I'm surprised it, it wasn't like sent out to every like Curry's and Dixon's and <laughs> yes, stuff like that exactly. to be like, here, we're going to sell your 4K televisions yep. by showing this film on it. And everyone will just stand there and go, ooh, it's what pretty. What the fuck? Yeah. The details. They had insane. it in 8K in like 2008. <laughs> that's insane yeah but you have the technology to clean up the print and like say here it is in its full mm. format um th- by the way you don't necessarily need to see the 8k version the blu-ray is, is is beautiful enough as it is but it's um so again to describe what it is 
It's very pretentious. Or has the ability to be very pretentious. You, Matthew. It's a visual poem. Mm. Yes. All right, George Lucas. <laughs> but it is a... It's just a... It's a, just a like a poem, but a, it's a... Yeah. a it's about Mortal Kombat. It's, uh, yeah, it's, got, uh, it's a little guy and he's got his spikes on his yeah. arms and... Uh, his dad's dead and he's very sad. Uh, I describe it as sumptuous. <laughs> sumptuous. I mean, this film is sumptuous. Very, again. No Mortal Kombat. There's no Mortal Kombat here, I'm afraid. <sighs> it's basically gone, and it's a very fascinating time because it was 1992 or the early 90s, and they've gone around on this massive project to film all around the world and just show life as absorbed by humans and stuff. And so there, uh, Cambodia at one point was going through a civil war at the time, I think, and there was a curfew. You could not go at night, but they were given, the film crew were given like permission to go out at night. So they were the only people walking around filming uh, time lapses of the night sky with these sort of mountain build-ups mm. and these temples and it's like it's insane and it's beautiful and it's haunting and it's terrifying and, and majestic and then also you have industry mm. it'll then cut to the the scramble on shibuya uh, crossing in, in japan it will show you the inside of a factory it shows humanity like kids salvaging on rubbish dumps in india and stuff like that exactly it's it's almost like an alien came to earth and said there's a lot of things here or should we show you the really colorful stuff let's just show you the things they do it's like, well what do they do some people have these practices some people have these practices it's like this is clearly a holy religious festival mm. and this is clearly going to work and it's like mm. yeah and so it can be quite jarring at times because it is there is a there is a narrative flow to it. there is a structure it's a non-narrative obviously but there is a structure to it it flows incredibly well through the edit mm. and the music is, is is getting transportive and it shows picturesque landscapes it shows buildings we've created it shows ruins of things we had previously it shows where animals have coexisted with man just monkeys sitting in the in um, hot springs it cuts to you know the, the the impact of man on on nature and things it shows just a snapshot of who and what we are mm. it realistically if you say mankind was to die off because let's face it we're not doing ourselves any fucking favors <laughs> um and you needed a snapshot of what life was like at one moment the way the Matrix describes the peak and, you know, we look mm, back at ourselves, we formed yeah. AI, this is it. Interestingly, you've touched on a similar kind of description mm-hmm. of the film as our good pal, oh, Roger Ebert. Mr. Roger Ebert. <laughs> has he said good things or bad things? Incredibly good things. Of course he has. Incredibly the time I don't want him to decide with me. Yeah. Are, they, are they incredibly Ebert things? That... Yes. Yes. The... I was stuck in a line for three <laughs> days. So, what? so I'll read it here. The title is The Eye Needs No Translator, which I think is a fucking brilliant headline, to be mm, fair. Mm. That perfectly encaptures like mm. what this film is about yeah. and why it is yeah. you know, transcends mm. language and all that kind of stuff, mm. because it is this non narrative, mm. non dialogue based mm. structure. Now let's see how Ebert fucks it up with his first <laughs> sentence. I actually really, really like this opening sentence. He waffles on about bollocks later on, but this <laughs> opening <laughs> stuff is really interesting. And this is where I'm kind of inspired to jump in here. If man sends another Voyager to the distant stars and it can carry only one film on board, there's a strong argument that that film might be Baraka. Yeah. He uses no language, so needs no translation. It speaks in magnificent images, natural sounds, and music both composed and discovered. It regards our planet and the life upon it. It stands outside of historical time. To another race, it would communicate, this is what you would see if you came here. Of course... This will all long since have disappeared when the spacecraft is discovered. Yeah. 
And mm. I, I again, what a cool opening! First of all, yeah, I know we shit on him all the time. <laughs> that is a great opening good description. Yeah. That is some good writing, and appropriately captures Baraka. I think I, I agree, and I think this is the thing. It, it, Baraka is. I know it's a fucking pretentious thing to say. Baraka is one of those films to, that you need to see to believe it, kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, because it's like this was 1992, and you're like, just think about the films that were coming out at that point in time, and this looks crisp and beautiful and amazing mm. and impossible. And stunning. Yeah. Again, Ebert touches on the technology we've already talked about as well. Um, say, as you said, Ron Frick, yeah, he, yeah. he invented this whole new time-lapse mm. camera system. Um, in 1992, it was the first film since 1970 to be f- photographed in Todd AO, the 65mm yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. And in 2008, it seems to have been the last. So there has not been a film since then, at the time of him writing this in 2008, oh, well, yeah, yeah. That, had, that had used the same system. Hmm. Uh, the restored 2008 Blu-ray is the single finest video disc I have ever viewed or could ever imagine. Damn. It was made from the Todd AO print, which was digitally restored to perfection, arguably superior to the original film in the 1992. It is the first ever 8K resolution film made from a 65mm film on the world's only scanner capable of transferring it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is comparable to what is perceptible to the human eye, the restorers say. Baraka itself is a sufficient reason to acquire a Blu-ray player. Yeah, and I, this is the thing. I, I genuinely, if you want to show off what your TV can do, if you think to yourself, <laughs> I've got a pretty good setup. My fo-, And again, as much I don't want to say this. Watch it on your phone, everybody. <laughs> if you go to YouTube and type in Baraka, B-A-R-A-K-A. Just like Mortal eight, Kombat. Yeah, exactly. 8K. You get really good the, shots of which, Mortal Kombat 11. Probably. Yeah, that's all I'll show you. But you know, you can, you can get like, uh, they'll show you that the 8K print and things like that and how mm. everything's restored. And obviously phones are have an amazingly powerful screen. Obviously you push it really close to your face, you get an actual like idea of it. It will be the probably the best thing you've seen on your phone in theory. Mm. Um and in twenty eleven, Samsara came out, which was the sequel, sort of sequel. It was a little underwhelming at times because you think stuff, well, what's the it's like when James Cameron does a film like, what are you gonna do next to change mm. the industry? It's like, well, it just did more of the same. But it covered a few other industry bits that we hadn't addressed mm. before. But it still did it really fucking well. Those two are mm. a, a, are a goddamn visual treat. Um so yeah, yeah, I I I recommend it highly. Uh, but again, it's the kind of film to get high watching because you just <laughs> you, it really doesn't. It goes at its own pace. If you think of oh, I think I'll just try this. Like mm, you have to be in the right frame of mind for it. I think mm-hmm. is is the fair thing to say. I have a visual. Uh, yeah, what what would your tr- given that it's such a diverse yeah. spread yeah, of really it, is, yeah. and and kind of purely images. Yes, I, it's a very hard one for me because the truth is, if I was to say what's the best bit in it, be like. Mm. I don't know. Mm. That's purely subjective. But I can tell you the thing that sticks in my head. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's, it's this idea in Bali, I believe, and they're, they're, these um, people all sit in a semicircle on the floor, the hands are outstretched, they're swaying and the fingers are moving mm. and they're chanting away. And it's, it feels like you're trespassing on something. It feels like the camera isn't actually there. You know, you forget in a way that you're watching a documentary at the end of the day, something that has been recorded purposefully and intentionally recorded and, and jotted down and permission given. Mm. And it's not a fictional story because these aren't like, oh, a, a tribe we've invented. It's like, no, no, this is a real practice. This mm. is a real thing. We're just witnessing it. Something about the movement, the flow of it all. And I know that in, in, in both Samsara and Baraka, there's sort of juxtapositions of other times mm. where you see other religions doing similar festivals and similar movements and things and the intricacy and the detail and the tradition. Mm. But that visual, just of, of, the, the, the motion of semi-clad individuals just moving and swaying and just 
it trans it just seems yeah the the, the chanting and the music of it yeah. is astonishing as well yeah. exactly and that that's what hits me like and it's it's that moment in the back of your head if you've ever traveled you see the world you see other people how they live and the experience mm. you think to yourself again we'll come to this very much in, in a minute in the second half but there are so many cool things you can invent but there are infinitely more things on earth that are real that you may not have thought about that exist that you go oh wow that is astonishing and it's happening somewhere right now in the world mm-hmm. you know the whole you are born you by chance and luck you could be this you could be that that kind of thing so yeah amazing film amazing film well we've covered everything on earth so mm. i wonder what the second half's gonna be mm. subterranean mm. movies <laughs> <laughs> it's the core and all the other good ones about yeah. the kong versus godzilla to be fair yeah. godzilla versus kong Visually striking, striking movie. Not <laughs> good. See. Visually striking. Yeah. This week's episode is sponsored by Audible. And you think, oh, you're doing an Audible ad when you've got visually striking things? An audio medium and a visual medium. How are you going to talk about that? Well, there are actually books about films. And those books have been turned into audio books. And then you can learn about films, visual mediums, through an audio medium that is audio books. That's what we've been doing for five years. Oh, no. You're right. Funny enough, mate, you can listen to sequelizers on Audible, so that works out quite well. Nice. And you can also listen to hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, comedy specials, even things such as documentaries and meditations and stuff like that as well. A variety of audio things across Audible and and its various platforms. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash sequel, you get a 30-day free trial, and that includes one free audiobook. And actually, the one I'm going to be recommending this week is included in your Audible membership. So me, just being an Audible member as I am, I just scroll past, and I was like, oh, is that included in the Plus catalogue? And I just click Add to Library, and I just got it. It's just straight in my library straight away. It's delightful. Oosh. I'm going to recommend Miyazaki World, because Hayao Miyazaki makes some visually striking films. Yep. And this is uh, Miyazaki World, A Life in Art, written by Susan Napier and read by Susan Napier. And basically talks about Miyazaki and his journey into filmmaking, his style, and how much, you know, his kind of films breaking out from being just typical anime kind of stuff and now being far more widely accepted in the Western world and then influencing the visual style and everything after that basically coming forward, whether that's live action or animated. You see the Studio Ghibli influence going forward, and specifically mm, from yeah. Miyazaki's movies, going forward into the Western world and across cinema as we know it over the last sort of two decades or so. I think it's fascinating to kind of understand his position and how much he's influenced the world. And I think he's arguably one of the most visually striking directors we've seen in animation. And yeah, maybe we'll be talking about animation soon in the oh. second half of the show. Oh. Who knows? If you'd like to read Miyazaki World, go and get a book. But if you'd like to listen to Miyazaki World, you can go to audibletrial.com slash sequel and get a free copy and a 30-day trial of Audible's fantastic service. So, we've got a few more picks. We've talked about real-world stuff. Let's get a bit more uh, further away from reality, shall we say. And Tim, I'll come to you first. What's your your second pick? So, yes, so now we're dealing with things that 
don't exist in reality. Fantasy, science fiction, those kind of images. Mm. And I've kind of immediately fucked up uh, <laughs> because I've chosen a film that doesn't have any special effects of that sense in a lot of ways. That's a sentence and a half then, what? Almost almost all of it is done in camera. Yeah. But it's still a fantasy film. Yeah. yeah you don't need CGI and, and no. out-of-camera bollocks to make yeah, it. Yeah, but I was no. panicking and thinking, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. But the truth is, you're right, because it is still surreality. Yes. It's the surreal version of what is real. Yes. Yes. Because it's not someone's pointed a camera. Oh, yeah, yes, it is shot in camera, but it is not our world that is a fictional reality that has its own rules and things. So yeah. the visuals then are married into that. Yeah. Uh, so the film that I have picked is The Fall by Tarsum Singh. What yeah, a fucking wow, film. Wow, yeah. Um, which uh, the uh, cinematographer, I should say on that, is uh, Colin Watkinson, although a lot of it was also shot by Tarsum Singh, um, or Tarsum, as he was n- credited on this film. Just yeah. one. Prince. Like, yep, Prince. And it actually, it shares a lot in common with Baraka, which Matt just talked about. Yeah. Down to some of the visual images, um, including the the ritual in Bali and some of the other stuff, are carried over because it was actually filmed in quite a similar way. Um, The fall was shot over the course of about four or five years. um, And... Tarsim started out as a uh, a music video director and a commercial director. That was what he did for a lot of his career. And so he would get to go to these extraordinary locations all around the world. Mm. And while he was there, he would shoot a bit of the movie. Yeah. And then he'd yeah. go and do a shoot another thing and shoot another thing. And then, oh, like we're in some interesting place now. Shoot another little bit of the movie. Weird. Yeah. I mean, that's how I did Super Happy Kill Time a lot, so. <laughs> yeah. But I don't. you didn't do that, like consciously like actively making a okay fine yeah all right tarson <laughs> oh no no, it's, no this is different but at the same time it's it's the whole i can bring my camera with me because i've got this phone because of the shooting yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah it's the ability to do i'll get some shots yeah and it was also largely s- financed by his own money because yeah, he wanted yeah. to do it his way um, yes it, it incorporates footage shot in more than 20 countries including india indonesia italy france spain namibia China and various others mm. and uses a lot of iconic locations like there's a very uh, famous step well in India um, yes. that is this extraordinary structure of this kind of this sort of almost tessellating downward pyramid of steps mm. um, oh, yeah. that allows for this extraordinary kind of and it is what's the um the artist that has all the stairs that don't make Escher, Escher, yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost it looks Escher. like an Escher thing but it's yeah. a thing that exists in the physical world somehow. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and to explain a bit about the, what The Fall is for people who haven't seen it, it is the story of uh, a guy played by Lee Pace who is a, uh, a stuntman mm-hmm. in very early cinema, kind of 20s cinema, who injures himself um, and is heartbroken over um, uh, an actress who he was in love with who's, who's uh, engaged to another man. Mm-hmm. And he is he's, has injured himself doing this like really reckless stunt, and is now kind of semi-suicidal in this hospital where he's trying he's recuperating from his injuries, but he's still you know feeling miserable. Yes, and he strikes up this friendship with this little girl who is also in the hospital, having broken her arm, 
and he starts telling her this kind of fairy tale story using the people around him as inspiration and his own life and all those kind of things and the the film cuts back and forth between their conversations what's going on in the hospital and this fantasy story that he is telling to her as the the sections set in the hospital are still gorgeously shot they're incredible the the acting by the little girl who was basically not an actor to a certain extent like she didn't they they kept it secret that lee pace could walk yes um she so thought a lot of it was real she yeah she mm. thought a lot of it was real she thought he was really like bedbound and stuff like that and so she gives this incredibly naturalistic yeah. performance and lee pace does a lot of like improvising with her where he's like doing stuff and then she it, she's reacting to it the way a real you know yeah. little girl would there's a, there's a magnificent scene where he's trying to overdose and he says about morphine and mm. he's trying to spell it to her and in in real life He's saying, what does this spell? And she goes, mm. M-O-P-R-H-I-N-3. Yeah. And he goes, what's this? Three. And they wrote <laughs> it into the script, because she couldn't get that, that she goes off and finds three morphine pills yeah, only. Yeah. yeah. And he can't obviously overdose on it, so he starts thrashing around the bed. Mm. And you can see the, the shot's perfect, because all the nurses run in and try and get to him. But she's like panicking, like, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? Mm. And he's, she's taken away by, you know, yeah. an extra who's a hand, that kind of thing. And it's all very, you know, it's not, it's not as monstrous as it sounds. Because mm. she thinks, oh, that, that man's in trouble now. And it, but it's, it's, yeah. That yeah. fucking film. Sorry, Tim. So yeah, all of that stuff is incredible and the performances are absolutely like spellbinding. Yep. And then the fantasy stuff is just so out there in terms of how gorgeous it is. Mm. And again, all of it's taking place at real locations around the world chosen for this incredible beauty, incredible like striking quality of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this weird fantasy where it's, He's a bandit and she's his like daughter who's also a bandit. And then they're helped out by Charles Darwin, who's got a little pet monkey. Yeah. Um, and they're fighting against this evil governor and it, all this kind of stuff. In a weird way, if you think of yourself, I can really picture that. Have you seen Sucker Punch? <laughs> it's that, but really fucking good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sucker Punch is really fucking bad. <laughs> um, it's got costume design done by uh, Eiko Ishioka, yeah. who did the costumes for uh bram stoker's dracula mm-hmm. uh which is incredible looking and and the costumes in this are just astonishingly yeah, good she's an award-winning costume designer and set designer and all that kind of stuff yeah she works yeah. in some of it. Uh, the things she creates is beautiful in their own right but when you pair them with someone who's got that eye for cinema yeah. you get this amazing ensemble of stuff it's just yeah yeah and just the way that he shoots these locations is absolutely gorgeous and the way that you know it, it does it like for example as I mentioned earlier, it takes this, the, the religious ceremony, the dance that Matt, I forget the name of the dance. Uh, the Kachuk. Yes, uh, in Bali, and then writes that into the film as part of this kind of like magical ceremony to, to reveal this map that they need. Yeah. That manifests as like tattoos on the body of uh, one of the characters and stuff mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that. Um, and it is a truly extraordinary looking, you know, it, it, it essentially takes a lot of the stuff that Baraka does in the more, obviously not looking at stuff like the industry and the contemporary The, the timeless stuff. stuff. The timeless stuff, mm. the nature, the locations that are just uh, gorgeous and extraordinary. Yeah. And weaves those into a narrative that then really pulls you into the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, we've already talked about him. I'm going to take a little bit from a, a Roger Ebert. Uh, review oh. here because um, it is it's 
it's a um it's a divisive film because some people just go like i don't get this it's divisive between cretins and people who understand yeah. glory. <laughs> it's it's beautiful visually, it's beautiful emotionally, and if you don't like it, you're dead inside, you piece of shit. Yep. That's just my professional opinion. <laughs> Luckily, Ebert gave it four stars. Good. Uh, he says, Tarsim's The Fall is a mad folly, an extravagant visual orgy, a freefall from reality into uncharted realms. Surely it is one of the wildest indulgences a director has ever granted himself. Tarsim, for two decades, a leading director of music videos and TV commercials, spent millions of his own money to finance The Fall, filmed it for four years in 28 countries, and has made a movie that you might want to see for no other reason than it exists. There will never be another like it. Uh, Um, And I think that is true because, like, Tarsim has made some follow-up films, not direct follow-ups to this, but other films yes and he always makes them very interesting looking for the most part except selfless which is terrible yes but nothing close to the full it is his magnum opus and it was like his second film that he ever made yeah it's he did a full-on fucking um uh i can't remember the guy's name the guy directed donnie darko and or oh richard Richard kelly Kelly, yeah exactly or or or, um orson wells you're like you kind of peaked a little too soon buddy i mean he did this thing like i want to create two viscerally fantastic mythological films one for families and children one for adults and they create immortals and mirror mirror in like the same year and mm. both of them are like i think you should have focused on one of these yeah and really drilled down a bit more but um yeah the fall is is magnificent uh tim we're gonna ask that question again yeah is there a single moment that you think punch that's it i mean there are so many yeah um it's really difficult to pick but the one that i will do is the one that's also we were just saying during our, our little break before we before we got into the second half of the episode. Oh, we'll yeah. we'll put together these these images that we're mentioning just so that people can can take a look at that. Mm. Um, this one's really two images, uh, because it is a match cut. Yeah, it is the best match cut I have ever seen in film. <laughs> and I like it is so. Hey, we're gonna really show off with this one. Yeah. Um, it's a match cut between like an evil. He's o- he's only in it for about two minutes. Mm-hmm. He's like an evil judge slash priest, I think, mm-hmm. who like sentences the characters to to prison. And it is a match cut between him in this very ornate uniform that's got like these black spikes going up around his head, and he's got like a bald head and like a band around it and stuff. And it does a match cut between just a face of him like smirking as he sentences these people to prison to a landscape that perfectly matches him yeah and they have they have constructed things in such a way that like his head is the mountains and then the band is like where the horizon is and it's it's truly extraordinary and you think Mm -hmm. like how the hell did they do this yeah especially knowing that they used basically no cgi Mm -hmm. in any of it but I could could have picked a, a, oh, a dozen yeah. other things. Yeah, it's a flick book of stuff. You go pick a page. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's fair. That's fair. Who's who's going to go next? I'm going to say Jack. Hey Tim, I'm going to go for something obvious. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> I feel like it's pretty obvious. It's for and you. Diving away from Baraka and the Fall, and getting more science fictiony. Mm. Diving back to. The best year in the history of cinema. <laughs> the best day in the history of cinema. <laughs> in 1982. The day where The Thing, which is a very visually striking movie, came out. And we talked about The Thing extensively 
horrifying imagery. Yes, and I've done a lot of research on another thing inside and out at this point. But the other film that came out on the same day as The Thing in 1982, fucking Blade Runner. Yeah. A film that basically defined an entire genre of science fiction and its entire visual style and look and vibe and atmosphere and lighting Mm -hmm. and costume design and set design and everything. It basically invented cyberpunk on the big screen, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. And fundamentally changed how science fiction has been portrayed since then, pretty much, over the last 40 years. Yeah. And whether that's the ridiculous kind of over-the-top like advertising and stuff, those huge, ridiculous, oh, impossible, we'll never get screens that big on the sides of buildings <laughs> doing advertising. Moving billboards? Moving billboards on the sides of buildings. They're 100 feet tall. That'll never happen. Oh, we have 3D ones now where they're yes. like Red 13 from Final Fantasy climbs out of a yeah. thing. It's like, oh, my God. Bizarre. And this kind of like dystopian look into what it was going to look like the distant future of 2019. Mm, I mean, <laughs> oh. it's pretty dystopian right now. Yeah. Little did we know that was on the edge of, of the dystopia. <laughs> well, again, it was, it's fascinating because for us, we've grown up, but as you say, Jack, it's informative, it's iconic. We go, oh my God, that's amazing. That's such a cool visual. There's a YouTuber that uh, we like called Chris Broad. He's recently opened uh, a sort of new studio area in, in Japan where he lives, and he wanted part of it to feel like a Blade Runner-y kind of uh, ramen shop kind of thing. And it's like, it's really cool, but it's like, but it's, it's also informed us in a positive way, despite the fact, as we've discussed on the show previously, back in the Reagan era of the 80s, it wasn't a positive. That was a dystopian future where America was overrun by foreign products. Yes, and, it was the 80s and Japan yeah. was this economic ninja coming to assassinate How you. How have they done this? It's not fair. All the products are big and scary and... And all the languages on the ground. It's not that people aren't speaking English. They have all kinds of languages. Even their own language. It's uncontrollable. It's like, it looks really fucking cool. No, it's dirty and dark and dank. No, it, it, it looks fucking cool. It's like, you did, Cronenworth, you did your job too fucking well. And I know I touched on this recently for uh, movie vehicles and talked about the spinner, of course, being one of my favorite yeah. all-time movie vehicles and this kind of I- iconic police car design so i won't touch on much of that specific thing again i want to talk about lighting because so often and i think this ties into skyfall as well the fact that when you look at a shot and think why are these people sat in this room in the dark like what there's this very clear like oh this is this is shot for cinema this is Mm. this is an obvious choice of like it's just the little streaks of light coming through the cracks in the, the little window just open ever so slightly and letting this single beam of light across the side of a character's face like, just turn the fucking lights on. What are you doing? I mean, I, I sit like that in my house. Of course you do. You, you're, <laughs> you're an artiste. You have times my wife has always said, why are you in the dark? You're in the dark <laughs> and just cold. Saying, saying... Are you a lizard? Is this what we're learning? No, lizards are cold. That was, that was a very lizardy I'm, noise. I'm very hot blooded, so. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. The thing is, I always respond with, "So, like, what are you doing in the dark?" Just thinking. <laughs> but it, the Tyrell building is the thing oh, that wow, really yeah. jumps out to me with those huge, like, sun shutters that come down and just block out all the light and the reflections in the fake animals' eyes and in the replicants' eyes. Yeah, and yeah. 
all this and the Voigtkampf machine and all this kind of stuff that is just has defined how we look at science fiction and even outside of science fiction has as you said matt like influenced Mm -hmm. youtubers and other filmmakers and comics and anime and all this kind of stuff that's just pulled through from what the incredible people did with blade runner and how they built Mm. that that world that weird kind of yeah mashup of different cultures and different styles and all this kind of thing it's it's like it's Los Angeles, but as you've never seen it before, and it's just like a fucking like nineties trailer. As you've never <laughs> seen it before, as you've never seen it before. But that's the point. It was like in stunning seven twenty p. It's it's amazing because it's like it's just a noir, but with robots. Yeah, yeah. But the way it's shot feels nothing like a noir. Even though yeah. it's like, but it's noir in Los Angeles that we've seen. But this it, before. but it plays off again. I think it's what we yeah. talked about earlier on in like subverting expectations. Yes, and stuff. yes. It plays off some of the tropes and some of the obvious stuff that you get in noir. You get like Rachel lighting a cigarette and the smoke kind of billowing in front of her face, and the camera just hovers there as she's like the classic femme fatale type thing. We're getting a real image today of what Jack likes visually. <laughs> it's dark rooms with smoke and amber hues. <laughs> Pretty much, really beautifully lit, yeah. Yeah, and nothing, no, no, no fucking shame because you're right, that's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, um, and yeah, just everything about Blade Runner. I think it's the world building, and again, I, I touched on this when I talked about the spinner as well. What the world? It's very much the show don't tell kind of mentality you touched on earlier, Tim. Where you don't have the characters being like, "Oh, this building looks like this because they built it in 2012," and yeah, blah 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 yeah. blah. You just get these towering monoliths and even the opening shot of like the skyline and the fires and all this kind of stuff mm. and the, this the horrible smoggy industrialness of it all. It's just this visual world building that is not holding your hand and not patronizing you or anything like that. It's just there being like, this is the world. Get used to it. He goes off to a noodle bar. There's steam coming out of the floor. There's robots that look like humans all over the place. We can test for that. But there's this really weird, like we touched on with Alien previously, this weird like futuristic technology that looks like it's very old because it's the 80s perspective mm-hmm. of the future. Yeah. And all these like CRT monitors, but it's 2019. It was like, we don't have CRT monitors. <laughs> and our CRTs for 20 years, guys. Come yeah. on. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's so visually defining for cyberpunk. You know, yeah. it essentially codified what a genre, uh, uh, what was then still quite a developing genre like neuromancer came out two years after blade yes, runner that's true because neuromancer is always considered the the, the father as it were of it's, of it's cyberpunk. maybe not the father but it's the defining oh, it's, yes in terms of mainstream yes like, yeah. yeah yes so. um and yeah it, to just think of the influence that blade runner has had in terms of like you say the visual storytelling mm. just defining what this particular vision of the future looks yeah. like and i can think of so many things be they tv shows or other films or video games that are borrowing from what blade runner does because that has become the language of like oh no well if we're setting it if we if we're trying to tell this kind of story about the individual in the face of massive corporate power and dehumanization and those kind of things it's like oh well we've we've got to have crt monitors and we've got to have like gigantic (laughs) billboards that like talk to you individually and we've got to have Mm. you know uh japanese street food 
and yeah. you know a lot of a lot of smoke a lot of dark rooms yeah. you know all these things that have become visual signifiers for it and so much of it just comes from that film yeah. that provided the template for this entire subgenre yeah you you have a character who is working for the biggest corporation doing the best stuff he lives in squalor effectively because the building he's living in is mm. old and dilapidated and you're like something must be broken here with this society so yeah yeah it's almost like capitalism doesn't work uh, what capitalism <laughs> and one of the one of the last shots not the last there's some weird last shots in the final <laughs> which <but>. version <laughs> yeah yeah uh the final moments of roy batty i think oh really yeah stand out. yeah the tears in rain speech and that whole thing but mm. even visually with the dove and the rain and him being this kind of in the previous scene he is like this uncontrollable animalistic monster that is just yeah. terrorizing mm. deckard and even though Deckard's not a great guy, as is well established in that film, fucking yeah. hell. Yeah. M. Emma fucking hates Deckard because <laughs> he basically sexually assaults Rachel. And it's like, yeah. who are we rooting for? Are we rooting for the serial killing robots? I was like, I guess so, yeah. Uh, over time, I think Batty might be the one we all sense him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a piece we're, of shit. It's like, oh. We're yeah. rooting for the person we root for in every film, Edward James Olmos. <laughs> Follows me on Twitter. Nice. <laughs> Followed by Gaff on Twitter. <laughs> um, but yeah, that just that final, the final moments of him on the roof with Deckard and that speech and that solemn moment after the speech where it's just Vangelis's soundtrack, Roy Batty like knelt there, ending this life that could have been something amazing. And again, he does that little sneaky world building thing with all the like, I've been off colony. I've seen things you wouldn't believe, and all mm. this kind of stuff. Rutger Hauer being amazing and just yeah, being like, yeah. "I'm just making this shit up," and people will be talking about this in 40 years. What like, does it mean? <laughs> no, it means I come with a lot of shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some weird like Star Warsy Dune space opera stuff yeah. that we will probably never explore. Ships on fire with the belt of Orion. Exactly. Like, yeah. What does that mean? Exactly. Yeah. And that so, that moment of quiet afterwards, where he is just knelt there, you know, shirtless. Covered in blood. The, Again, the... a lot of a lot of Jack's kinks coming through. Yeah. <laughs> Shirtless, covered in blood, amber lighting. Yeah, no. and Harrison that... Ford's bewildered face. <laughs> that film is so blue. And yeah. Again, to come back to colours and have that kind of the neon pinks and all that kind of stuff, and then have like blue being the term for like sad and solemn and all that kind of stuff, and mm. tying that into cool colours. Cool colours, exactly. Yeah, tying it into that moment at the end there where you see that you know he could be this amazing brilliant person that could transform the world or do terrible evil things yeah we'll never know because his life ends in that moment and you yeah. have that just solemn few seconds of just the rain hitting the rooftop and deckard being there and just experiencing this moment and it's just so is that is that we say that, well yeah, that's, that's, that's the moment yeah, yeah that's the thing whenever i fair. think of blade runner i think of tears in rain i think yeah. of that yeah. moment and and kind of the hovering on his face as the, the mm. light leaves his eyes and all that kind of stuff. It's just amazing. Yeah. Even even the um there's an artist called Alex Alex Yang who does she does amazing like comic book covers and she does loads of film prints and all this kind of stuff. She's done a Tears in Rain print and the eye like reflecting thing from from testing replicants from the mm-hmm. Voidkampf test. Yeah. God, I want them as prints on my mm-hmm. wall. Uh, my friend Mike has the eye, and he has it in this like massive scale. It's like all the way across his living room, and it's just oh this, wow! It's like 
That's a statement piece. It's like three feet long, probably four feet long, something like that. And it's just this giant eye. And it's like you can see depths and universes in that eye. It's just this spectacular moment. And there, there are so many bits from Blade Runner that are just mm. ready to be posters and phone yeah. wallpapers and desktop backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. Shit you just want to look at and appreciate all the mm. weird little details and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And if you've seen Blade Runner in the cinema, you know it. The scale of it is just yeah, fantastic. It's yeah. one of the films that they did a re-release of, and I made sure to go and see it in the cinema. Like, yeah, yeah, I may not get the chance. I've seen Blade Runner a bunch of times in various different versions, for better and worse. Yeah, but I need to go and see Blade Runner on the big screen to finally appreciate it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And when we did, all 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 the boys were like, "Oh God, fucking Blade Runner! God, it was so good. Finally saw it on the big screen." And all of our partners were like. What was that? That was awful. <laughs> like, why did we waste like two and a half hours of our life? I'm like, well, okay. Mm. Welcome to the final cut of Blade Runner. <laughs> I must admit, when I first saw Blade Runner, I didn't like it. Uh, I was too young oh, yeah, to get so, it. Yeah, most I mean, people don't know a lot of people. Yeah. But I also saw the theatrical cut first. I, so I was just else. about to ask, yeah. did you have old mumbly Harrison Ford? Yeah. Oh, it was oh, It was theatrical oh, cut oh, on oh, TV oh, in 4.3. Oh, so oh, That's not optimal. Well, Blade you know, runnering. mid-90s, weird time. Fair. So, Matthew. Hello. Rounding off our science fiction and fantasy pick. Yes. Um, so people are thinking to themselves, like, oh, cool. Where's Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and stuff? Not here. I talked about Star Wars earlier. Yeah, we did. But not here. I've talked about Lord of the Rings before on this show. Yeah. We're giving platforms other things. Yeah. No, what I'm saying is that some people think these things are visual, And they are visually striking. But we want we platform to things that are striking to us that are just will stay with us forever kind of thing. And for that reason, I had to go with something by Aronofsky. I'd never heard of that film before. It's it's a bit of a rare cut. Only ah. real cinephiles know about it, Jack. Mm. No, and uh, the the pick I went with. It's it's not a well reviewed film. It's not highly <laughs> regarded, but I fucking adore it. And I think it's visually stunning and spectacular in every capacity. Might be my favorite Aronofsky film. I think for a lot of people, it probably is as well because it's the emotional core in it is just mm. too beautiful not to be done. I way. I saw this in the cinema when I was in America mm. and cried several times throughout it wow and then at the end i was just like i have to sit here for five minutes long after the film is finished so i can just process what has happened yeah i watched it when i was like 17 didn't like it and haven't gone back to it since <laughs> I, I probably should i i would say it's the film okay so similarly i was in america as well tim ah, um and i watched it with my then girlfriend and wept like little boy uh she dumped you on the spot for not being a real man classic right, early 2000s oh yeah. matt you beta cut <laughs> <laughs> eh. so i i and then the thing is that we then just went on a very long very quiet walk and i think that's what this film is and it, it hits so hard if you have been in and it sounds like a silly thing to say jack being 17 is kind of a quintessential example I would have been 16, in fact. Oh, I, I think there I, we go. No, yeah. So, yeah, I would mm. have been 17 or 18 or something like that. Because, yeah. obviously, came out in 2006 and then later on DVD or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. And not, not to rob anything from teenagers here. <laughs> Dangerous territory. But you have to have been in a meaningful relationship. <laughs> and a lot of teenagers, uh, Romeo and Juliet style, like, well, I have. It's like, eh, shut the fuck up. And I can appreciate that they're really being meaningful relationships at that age. But if you've I, been in something... I don't like this direct attack, Matthew. <laughs> it's, sort of a, 
personal attack on 17-year-old Jack. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that if you've been in something where you've been with a person and you've connected with them and you have had a thing that's stopped or ended or been taken away from you, for whatever reason, and more importantly as well, if you've had death in your family or death in your life as well, mm-hmm. it can hit hard. One could argue the film is so good that even if you haven't, it can possibly put you in that mind frame anyway. You're like, I don't know if I want to ever have a relationship because if mm-hmm. this is how it ends for all of them, I, I, I can't fucking do mm-hmm. it. So it's a film Aronofsky tried to get off the ground for a long time. At one point, it was going to be Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and then we, and I don't think we've actually said the name of it yet. We're not going to. Um, <laughs> I will reveal it at the right time. And then the budget was like, this is too much. And so he said, fine, I'll make it for 35000 35000 35 million dollars and <laughs> that's a hell of a budget yeah, no, fucking hell, yeah. sorry 35 million dollars and we're gonna axe all the cgi and do it as solutions in like liquid the same way they shot the nebula sequence star trek rathagon kind of mm. thing and we'll s- completely recast with rachel weiss who i think was aronofsky's wife at that point yeah i think so yeah or possibly this is how they met, possibly maybe? but they were yeah they were close either way and and hugh jackman mm. the film in question is the fountain i remember seeing the trailer for it weirdly enough i think i was about 21 20 when the trailer came out and this was the, this was the earlier day i mean sounds silly thing to say but in the 2000s you had to download a trailer for quite some time to get to the trailer mm-hmm. it was a, it was a big deal and it was like it was the guy that did record for a dream i thought oh fuck wow okay what's he doing and it was like it's three narratives about someone in the 1500s in the year 2000 and the year 2500 and it's like what it's like, yeah and they're all linked and they're all played by hugh jackman what <laughs> that is amazing so it's the story of a conquistador who's been sent to um central and southern america by spanish queen and he's trying to find the tree of life to find eternal youth mm. that kind of stuff and then on the other side of things it's a doctor who is trying to find a cure for cancer because his wife is dying of cancer and he refuses to believe he cannot, you know, he thinks mm. death is a disease, is, is, is the quote. Mm. And the third one is a spaceman, um, <laughs> Tommy the Space Traveler, and he is flying to a nebula to bring a tree to it. Yes, and the spaceship is the tree. The spaceship is the tree in a bubble. Um, it is glorious because every aspect of it, every time period is so rich. In, in how it's saturated and how it, it's, it's full of detail and life, oddly enough. And the performances are beautiful. And it's the idea of being so narrow-minded and driven that you can't accept what things are and that death is not actually the end. And, and I'm not talking about like afterlife stuff. I'm talking about the idea of human acceptance of our capacity yeah. in time. And you can get so worked up when you know... It's like, we all know we die. We all know the ones we love die. But for some reason, we're obsessed with trying to keep that alive and it's like but only when you've heard like someone's got like a terminal diagnosis or something and obviously with the pandemic recently we've all been very much Mm. cognitively aware of this shit very heavily um but the visuals of the film is that it's a conquistador film shot mostly on a back lot with lots of cgi at times and it looks terrifying and dark and Mm. and oppressive and uh thick evil jungle in the middle of the night It's, Mm. it's and yet the bits in spain are washed in gold and it's just mm. it's, it's glorious to behold and the costumes are amazing it, it, there's this golden palette throughout yes yes that is it's really rich a- astonishing yeah. yeah in the in the 2000s there's this doctor with tom creo he's he's like his wife is writing a book and she's obviously in their, their, their house and and going to museums and things and just breaking stuff 
and the doctor's in his very sterile lab and that very feels like a very cool mm. uh juxtaposition and the space stuff as i say is is the kind of visual effect that it will not really arguably ever age yeah because it's mostly in camera stuff it's literally as i say putting really cool if you get like shampoo and put it in water or oil and water and go wow fucking mm. hell slow that down and have this tiny bubble going <laughs> flying past it's a way of doing sort of future science fiction like how do you show someone traveling through space spaceship all right what if the spaceship is a bubble mm. and in that bubble oh like a, a biodome sorry mm. and the tree is living in there and you're like i've plucked this off the ground and we're flying to a nebula and i'm he, he, hugh jackman's got a shaved head and he's in a monk-like state mm. and you can't tell what isn't isn't real is it a story that she's written? Is mm. it a thing in his head? Is has analogy for all the stuff mm. that's happening? But fuck me, so much of it is just glorious. It's so beautiful. It's so pretty. In in a kind in a way that the the requiem for a dream is very striking visually as a film, mm. but in the most uncomfortable way. Yeah, this is the same thing that washes you with the feeling of being in love. Um, it, it it's like. This all-encompassing light that is somehow sometimes too fucking blinding and bright that you're like, mm. I can't actually take this anymore. It's too much. Mm. I'd rather not feel anything because it's just, I'm too overwhelmed. And again, if you've had that emotional connection with somebody, you can form a connection with this film and go, and some people go, nah, it's pretentious wank. And that's not very good. It's, it's the story's meh and mm. the acting's very over the top and, and the visuals are very silly. And well, I don't really know what it means. Could arguably say those things, of course you could. But you can't say it's not visually striking. It's, it's a stunning film. Yeah, um, I know we're talking about visuals here, but I do want to shout out to Clint Mansell's score oh, as fuck well, me. Yeah. and the way it connects with the visuals, the way that it, yep. it is timed to certain moments is yeah. like extraordinary. The, the 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 two acting in concert mm. is so powerful. I saw the Kronos Quartet uh, play live, and they did uh, "Death Is the Road to Awe," and it was room shaking yeah it was stunning as an experience it's one of my favorite film scores yeah no, um, i think it's fair yeah yeah i i totally agree for a little little glimpse behind the curtain here for listeners matt and i originally had each other's picks we did matt had the fall <laughs> and i had the fountain yeah um and then because i i, I picked the fall like yeah fall's great great show i'll pick that mm. and tim and the fountain and then we sort of looked at each other <laughs> the list, repeatedly the list over a couple weeks and said Hey Tim, I I will trade you the fall for the yeah. fountain because <laughs> I think Tim's response was you bastard. Yes, because <laughs> again I said about I had to pick an Aronofsky. It's like, mm. but initially when you do that, you write down an idea to start mm. with when you say like, oh the this yeah, and that's like well actually if I think about it for five seconds, so yeah Tim and I on that very much on that wavelength yeah yeah. Um, incidentally, standout moment for me the, the one I think of mm. is literally the big huge golden void of space, and just that bubble going. Ooh, flying mm. past because it's just like it's like nothing you've seen because again if you just say oh we're going to travel through space you sit back to a certain way of like doing it mm. you can do it beautifully and like add astro or gravity or something like that or you can mm. do it crazy over the top like star wars or star trek but mm. that's so unusual and otherworldly that it's like it's as good as like saying jack broke blade runner crt if we say what computer screens are like now but like well you wouldn't have been able to vision that it's just it just seems too uh like yeah. too insane um which is what abrams tries to get across in star trek with his like lens flares and it's like mm. it'd be too much to take on for your eyes and, like i know what you're trying to get at here but stop it no, i <laughs> think it has to be a lens flare JJ. no 
this is Aronofsky's version of doing that. Like what you yeah. can't imagine. It, so we'll just do it like this. Like that's fucking crazy. So yeah, yeah, glorious. So let's go take our third and final collection. Mm. Should we say? Should we bounce to Jack Chambers first? Yeah, oh, I think a good pick. I had a I had an obvious pick last time. Blade <laughs> Runner. If you've ever listened to the show before, Jack gonna Jack. You're probably gonna guess this one if you knew what the topic was. Because we're getting further and further away from reality. We started with documentaries and based in the real world. And we're getting towards science fiction and fantasy and whatever the fuck the fountain is. All e- of that. Everything. <laughs> all everything all at once. Let's talk about some animated movies, boys. Heck yeah. Truly not real. I want to talk about one of my favorite films ever. <laughs> my favorite animated film mm-hmm. ever. The best Spider-Man film ever. Spider-Man Into the Motherfucking Spider-Verse. That's the official title, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's on my Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> because there is nothing that looks like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. People have tried to copy it and are still trying to copy it now. There'll be a lot of things to try, yeah. Yeah. And it really kind of set the bar for me for what is possible with all the attention to detail and all the fascinating little things. And really diving into like the behind the scenes and the creation of it all, just because of the fact that I was such a huge fan of Miles Morales and Spider-Gwen and the yeah. kind of Spider-Man multiverse kind of stuff going into it. The way that it looks and the way that it is animated, and it's the animation especially, but the fact that we are crossing through these different universes and we've got all the other Spider-Men from Spider-Ham to fucking Spider-Man Noir played by Nick Cage, like all these incredibly striking weird visuals that just pop up out of nowhere even penny parker being the the japanese spider-man with the mech spider and all that kind of stuff fascinating completely different juxtaposing visuals that should not work together and purposefully don't work together yeah (laughs) and they all kind of mush together and the thing that really kind of stood out for me i remember seeing the trailer and being like doing a miles morales film like oh my god I was doing a Miles Morales podcast at the time. It was back yeah, when I hosted yeah. Ultimate Spin. And we were like, holy shit, they're going to... For some stupid reason, we stopped doing our podcast before this film came out and <laughs> <laughs> broke my heart. Like, they made it specifically for us, and then we were just like, nah. <laughs> you, you, you were knee-deep in sequelizer at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is the, yeah, we were crossing over. I was doing three podcasts at once. Yeah, I was still that's, doing that's Intercomics, also doing Ultimate Spin, and then sequelizer started a couple of years before that as well. So it was a busy time for podcasting in my life, and sequelizer's won. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> I, I, I have been in a lot of fights. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on a lot of podcasts. <laughs> Or see who wins. But yeah, seeing that trailer and seeing the moment where Miles is kind of bouncing off the the cabs as he's swinging through and being kind of clumsy and being like, oh, I can't control myself and all this kind of stuff. And you see the the like just little strikes and little moments of this weird like pop arty comic book style that has the Biff Bam Pow kind of thing from the classic 60s Batman. Yeah. That like streak across the screen as he's struck by something or as he bumps into something you get little visual cues that you could almost watch that scene silently and still get an idea of how clumsy and untrained he is and all that kind of stuff absolutely and i remember mm-hmm. it blowing my mind with the fact that the animation style of miles specifically 
changes as the film goes on. And yes. Like, what, oh, what does that yeah. mean? And I was like, yeah. What, what do you What do you even mean by that? And it was in the behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray, and they were talking about how when he's learning to become Spider-Man and Peter Parker is training him and stuff, he shot at a lower frame rate. Yeah, I was God, like, it's just what What do you mean? It's like so. His movements are not as slick and don't feel as fluid and responsive and all that kind of stuff to put it in kind of video gamey terms with like frame rates and stuff, which mm. is usually where you think about like frame rates changing. Typically, movies do not change frame rates mid film. And this one doesn't. It is one character in the film is moving differently yeah. to the world around him. And he is learning to understand his powers and his body, you know, obviously it's a, you know, adolescence message and all that kind of stuff. It's fucking Spider-Man, of course it is. And then as he's swinging and as he's getting more comfortable, the frame rate goes up mm -hmm. and his movements literally become more fluid and more connective and more kinetic as he's swinging and becoming more confident and settling into his powers. I didn't conscious, again, it's this, I didn't consciously notice that when I was mm. watching it. And then going back and looking behind the scenes, I was like, that's fucking genius. It's what we said earlier about, oh, is this a mistake? No, it's intentional. Mm. And you don't even know it's there. Yeah. 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 You're like, yeah. wait, wait, wait. You're shooting one character and basically having animating them at a different frame rate to literally everything in this world. Yeah. Are you sure? And they were like, trust us. Mm. You leave it to us and we will blow your fucking minds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It all, so many of the decisions in that film feel like that having stuff in the distance or the extreme close-up kind of fracture and blur yeah, yeah. Or, or not even blur just kind of like turn into f fractal images kind yeah. of thing rather than rather than having them out of focus or blur sounds like it shouldn't work sounds like it should be so visually confusing mm. and then you watch it and and watch it in motion and it works perfectly and yeah. it's so good and it and it feels it's offset in the way that some old comic book printing used to be, and it yeah. creates it. It's like I did a little sideswipe shit on Marvel earlier, and one of the biggest disappointments of the MCU is that they haven't taken more from the visual language of comics and integrated it. You know, we already had the stage of you know X Men and and things like that, where oh, we're embarrassed to have the the costumes look like the costumes in comics. Yes. Um, it would be dark black leather. Yes, and that's much more yes adult and cool. The closest you'll ever see to Wolverine as he is in the comics is a, a teaser at the end of the Wolverine where we'll open up a case and see the uniform, but he'll never ever put it on. It's that that thing I fucking hate with superhero movies, and I feel like thank God we've broken through this barrier mm. now. Yeah, whereas you said Tim, they were like embarrassed to be comic book movies, yeah. and just be like. Huh. Well, you do this thing. We don't call him Superman. That's yeah. a stupid name. Yeah. We don't wear X Men costumes. They're stupid. They're yeah. for babies who read comic books. Yeah. Like, Thank God. I, I, I hope, I pray for the most part that we're past that childish bullshit yeah. at this point. On the other side um, of things, you get like anime, shonen adaptations that like make it purely comic accurate. Yeah. Like, well, some things you can probably work as like, no, yeah. Yeah. Like, no only no. the cartoons. <laughs> like, shit. Yeah. And Spider-Verse is in no way embarrassed that it is a comic book. And it takes, and again, it, it, it is doing adaptation. It's taking these things and even these 
what was flaws at the time of the comic printing method and stuff like that yeah. and saying like okay this wasn't ideal but but people have this association between it and again on a visual level on a subconscious level how can we interpret that and 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 do an adaptation of that for our visual medium for mm-hmm. animation how can we use that to tell the story in an interesting way? How can we use this to make it visually distinct? And it's so good. And so, so much love and craft has been poured into every single frame of that film. And it looks, it absolutely looks the part. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's, I mean, with, with like Roger Deakins again, just, just a bit of a parallel on How to Train Your Dragon, where he was consulting like, oh, how can we get depth of field in terms of animation? Oh, this does this. And it's like, oh, you're trying to emulate what a camera does, what a lens does, except it's all technically painting. Yeah. Mm. And then you get something like Into the Spider-Man, which is like, can we just do our own version with our own language yeah. and the things we have the tools of a trade? Is yeah. like, it just, just makes more do sense. Do things that are only possible in animation. Exactly. Cameras do not move like this. No. Humans don't move like this. Mm. Trains don't move. Cities yeah. don't look like that. Mm. The sky doesn't yeah. look like that. But fuck you. This is yeah. an animated move and we can do what we like yeah. here. And you make it not necessarily believable, but a consistent and coherent world. Yeah. And then multiverse, obviously, mm. with the various different things coming in. And even there's so many like little visual gags in there as well, which, of course, animation is so good at. I know I talk, oh, about, yeah. I talk about The Simpsons all the time and mm. like all that kind of stuff. We've been doing visual gags and animation in the background and little references and mm. stuff for decades yeah. at this point. But even like little things just cutting to Spider-Man Noir and he has got the, all this shading on Spider-Man Noir because he's in black and white, folks. He's mm. basically like a noir detective mm. parody character, essentially. Mm. In the comics, deadly serious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Spider-Man Noir. Very, very different to what it is in the yeah. film. Yes. X- X-Men yes. Noir, Spider-Man Noir, all that kind of stuff is like taking itself pretty fucking seriously. Yeah. And then I like that one. Yeah, I do as well. Spider-Man Noir in in this is fucking Nicolas Cage. Somehow, even though he's not on screen, chewing all the scenery in the world. Yeah, and just being ironically the hammiest motherfucker <laughs> on screen, despite being with an actual spider ham. Yeah, and you have like all the shading looks like it's from that like old newspapery comic mm. booky kind of thing. That pop arty, everything is done in little dots. Yes, Bendy dots. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dots, yeah. And every different spider person has their own visual style and the world around them and the shot changes. And we have the joke of like, oh, great, everyone's going to get their own origin story mm. and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And you get those little shots and those little moments where you're kind of transported to their world for a second. Mm. And you see the differences. You see the styles. You see the colors and the animation, the world that they're from completely transform for just a few seconds. And then you snap back into this reality. I think you touched on it earlier on, Tim, with the the effects that are going on in this weird kind of like surreal moments of the city, like shifting around miles and stuff. You get that classic like Kirby crackle or mm. those those weird energy balls. Yeah, <laughs> one of their phrase. Yeah, that is so defined. Jack Kirby style of this weird cosmic energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just Google search Kirby crackle, if you don't know what I'm yeah. talking about you'll recognize it straight away as yeah, like, yeah. oh, I've seen that a million times and other mm. things. And that was such a distinct thing that kind of defined Kirby's interpretation of all these like mystical cosmic energies and stuff. And the fact that we're dealing with multiverse weirdness and interdimensional travel mm. and portals and the like big mm. cre- 
kind of no way home style, these big cracks in the sky mm, and all yeah. people falling through portals and all this kind of stuff. There's such a cool opportunity to play with different things. And I think they absolutely nail basically mm. every opportunity. The yeah. fact they use the Bill Sinkovich block wall of a kingpin yeah. design. Oh, yeah. The kingpin design is absolutely, he is a fridge of a man. <laughs> he fills the screen. My yeah. God, yeah. That I've I've had countless. I know I've been kind of like half joking, like, "Oh, that's the kind of thing you get a phone wallpaper." I have so. If you scroll through my phone right now, I have uh, an album called Wallpapers, and probably like half of them are from Into the Spider Verse. Yes. <laughs> Whether that's you know shots of miles from like the What's Up Danger scene, which uh. Tim got me as a print as a Christmas <laughs> present a few mm, years ago, mm. and is now in my living room. Mm. Um, or whether it's the moment where he's swinging through, or the shot of them all like lined up together, all the different spider people, mm. Miles coming face to face with Peter, that shot of the kingpin where it's just pitch black and he fills the entire screen and his tiny little head in the middle there, yep. and it's just this tiny yeah. little bald kingpin in the center there. There's so many amazing shots and brilliant things. They even make the fucking spider bite look interesting. <laughs> and that's the thing of like, oh God, we are... That's something to be actually embarrassed about. We, we've just done Homecoming. Like, we don't need another fucking Spider-Man origin story. Somehow, they do a Spider-Man origin story that I wasn't tired and annoyed by yeah. after we've had it two times in the last yeah. decade, basically. Because that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the same thing, like... We're going to see a thing we're so familiar with. It's going to be Martha's Pearls. <laughs> it's like, you can't we, do anything with better it. better fucking not get that in the Batman, I swear to Christ. Uh, uh, there's three hours of it, so who knows? <laughs> so it's an hour and a half yeah. of Pearls. And I'm about, to clarify what I'm saying there, I don't think it's embarrassing because it's like, oh, it shouldn't be better. The comics, I think, it's no, because we've seen it so many times. But just to give you a bit of a parallel here to sort of cap it off, Into the Spider-Verse came out and won Best Picture, as in Best Animated Movie. And it deserved it at the Oscars and various other accolades, etc., etc. And it did so much with every single frame, every single character. In the same year, on a, I think, a similar budget, Sherlock Gnomes came out. <laughs> bland as all shit. And yet, had the capacity, arguably, to be the same thing. Because it's an animated movie. Yeah. You could do that if you wanted to. But you chose to be Sherlock Gnomes. Fuck you. My pick is Sherlock Gnomes. <laughs> In a world of Sherlock Gnomes, choose to be into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, yeah. be a fucking Spider-Verse, yeah. <laughs> I presume oh, that yeah. your, the image that comes to mind is what's up, Danger. Is what's yeah. up, Danger. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the, the upside-down, yeah. falling-up shot of the city of Miles. He's not falling. Just... He's rising. Oh. 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 Visual storytelling, people. Visual storytelling. Magnificent. So fucking good. Oh. If you for, if for some reason you're listening to this show and you haven't seen Into the Spider Verse, Jack's gonna plead with you now. Stop listening, pause it, and go and watch Into the Spider Verse right now. I like to think as much as we're saying like, don't watch this fucking movie. The interseason's like, please watch this fucking yeah. movie. <laughs> I would say it's, it's the break between us being like, this is terrible. Oh yeah. my god, why do we subject ourselves to this garbage? Yeah. And then in the interseason stuff, we get to a bunch of recommendations of stuff we like. Yeah, and there's few things I like in this world more than Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Jack likes pizza, but Jack prefers Into the Spider-Verse. Mm. Yeah, old statement, but yeah. if you had to give up one, probably gonna be the Spider-Verse because pizza's damn good. Pizza's delicious. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> can't, I'm sorry. You you can't visually strike someone with a pizza as much. Pizza can be visually striking. I That's true. Sometimes they have a hole in the middle. <laughs> 
So if you play your cards right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh, that. Well, I'm going to transition over to my sequelizer's colleague, Mr. Tim Matum. Talk about your choice of animated movies, sir. So, obviously, we're in the animation section. We are. But... That's why we're animated, but people can't see that. Yeah. I'm I'm not going for... Even, even as Spider-Verse was pushing the boundaries of what what we would consider cell animation, although it's probably all done in a computer, sure. um, is capable of. I'm going with something stop-motion animated. Yes, oh. lovely. And my pick is 2016's Kubo and the Two Strings. Oh, what a fucking choice, Tim. Damn, like a man. Love it. Yeah, I mean, we, we have raved in the, in the past about Laika and the the quality of films that they produce and they are pretty mm. uniformly visually striking yeah, um yeah, and very much so. and of an incredibly high quality kubo and the two strings really stands apart for me the 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 universe that it creates the the the, the fantasy realm that it creates is so obviously it's drawing huge inspiration from japanese culture and various things they talk a lot about how they they wanted it to look like woodblock paintings a lot of yeah. the time and in particular and in particular some certain scenes are very much inspired by like actual japanese woodblock paintings and prints and uh, from from certain periods but it take it's got a really great synthesis of a lot of elements and uses them to create something unique um for something that is stop motion animated there is just some it's it's one of those films you watch it and you have to keep reminding yourself this was done in stop motion i was about oh, to say yeah. that yeah i didn't be- there are moments where you don't believe yeah it's stop motion you're like yeah i mean they didn't obviously didn't do that bit mm. fucking hell it must have taken yeah. so long of, of all the possible things to make a film i think the one i would like to try least is stop motion mm. just because mm. every single little detail takes so long. Yeah, every possible movement, every eyebrow raise, every hair follicle takes hours and hours of perfect positioning and moving around. And oh my god, oh mm. my god, I have so much respect for anyone who's ever done any sort of stop mm. motion stuff. Yeah, it's absolutely and insane. Even allowing for being able to do stuff like CGI out struts that are holding characters yeah, up so course, they're leaping yeah. through it it's still like mind-boggling some of the stuff they do with the the origami powers that he has of like yeah. the paper folding up is just like extra and and, and i just mind-boggling in the it's intricacy. wizardry yeah and they they had a i believe 16 foot tall skeleton model i mean calling it a model is kind of like it's <laughs> ridiculous it's, yeah. at that point yeah weighed 400 pounds and was like held together with magnets and and stuff like that. It's just a it's it's constantly visually inventive. Such a great story. The character designs are so good, and just the stuff like the uh, the the monkey played by Charlize Theron, monkey or ape, monkey ape monkey. The character's called monkey. It's an ape, but it's, it's an called, ape, it's but called, it's called, it's called, called monkey. Turns out they're Let's, both right. Hence my confusion just so characterful in and 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 like jack says like you've got to remember that all the acting done in this is the result of incredible craftsmanship and hours and hours of effort 
to try and get these subtle emotions. And I think it does that just as well as it does the big stuff. It does the big 16 foot tall skeletons that to your, when you see them on screen, they are mm. just huge and, and mind blowing. But it also does that emotional storytelling and the acting on these characters' faces and in the, and the way they move and stuff like that. And, and even stuff like visual comedy, uh, sort of, uh, physical comedy. Um, yeah. the, the Beatles Samurai played by Matthew McConaughey is such a kind of buffoon, but also tragic. Charming, but a clown. Yeah. It's such a, a perfect blend of all these elements. And as much as we said, as I said, like Leica have this very high bar. It doesn't look like many of their other films. To me, they had a certain kind of aesthetic to us to at a certain point. It felt like not that they were like treading the same ground, but I was like, oh, OK, I know what they are about. I know what yeah. their films are going to look like. And then Kubo came along and I was like, this is very different as much as i can see the visual consistency in terms of character design this is such a step forward and a step up and a step to the side they're going in all various different directions <laughs> yeah. it's just a beautiful film to look at and yeah and then you start to think about the craftsmanship that's gone into it and it blows your mind yeah no i think that's entirely fair i think stop motion is a wonderful thing to address because uh, I love it in the end credits of most of Leica's films. They show you these time lapses of the things moving. I was about to, yeah, yeah. Come on to that. And Seeing how long that takes yeah. and how smooth the animation seems. Even though you see this blur of a person like positioning everything and moving every little yeah. movement and motion is over incredible. hours and days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 insane. But it's again. That's part of it. It's, it's visually striking just in its world building and what it does, but then you know how it's created as well. You go, mm. holy shit. Yeah. 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 Like, nothing looks like it in the last decade, last mm. 20 years. Yeah. Like, Other Leica films have come close, though. But it's always, even then, it's got its own personality. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, was, it won the BAFTA Award for Best Animated Film mm. and was nominated for the Academy Award for both Best Animated Feature and Best Visual Effects. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's the the first film that that's ever been nominated for both wow um and is only the second stop motion animated film to be nominated uh for best visual effects the mm. first one being nightmare before christmas yeah wow oh, what one best animated film that year i wonder probably something disappointing Sherlock i feel Gnomes. like <laughs> fucking Sherlock <Gnomes. laughs> Romeo and juliet no i feel like it might be one i was like ah it's annoying but i get it that kind of thing yeah it was uh zootopia Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was a strong year, so it was... The nominees were Zootopia, Kubo and the Two Strings, Moana, My Life as a Zucchini, and The Red Turtle. And Which all again, of those are good yeah. films. Yeah. I, it's almost like if any of those won, I'd be like, yeah, fair play. Yeah. It's it's very hard to, to get one. But yeah, mm. good show. It's good not show. 2017 when the fucking Boss Baby was nominated. Fucking Boss Baby, get in the bin! Tim, what's your standout moment from... <laughs> uh, from Kubo, anything particularly like you? I mentioned it already, and it's it's one of those things, like you just said, that it's visually striking by itself, and then when you know the work behind it, it becomes yeah. even more so. It's the big, it's the big red big skeleton. skeleton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, for for me, it's the sisters on the boat. And the, it's, yes. it's another big rig. Like holy shit. Yeah. How is this possible? But yeah. yeah. Again, it's a, it's a film where there's lots of things, and even simple things like just the 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 design of of Beetle. And stuff yeah, like that, I think, yeah. is so 
cool. <laughs> no, I, I don't disagree. I just, I, I, and it's one of those films where I'm like, I love this as an adult. If I, if this had come out when I was like eight or nine, yeah. I would have been obsessed with it. Yeah, you'd be playing that shamisen until your fingers. <laughs> yeah, I'd yeah. be like, where are my action figures of this? Because it's the fucking coolest thing. I still think that's a question we should be. I mean, there are action figures, but I think again, it should have been. I'd take impact. a really cool it was... like statue, and it didn't. Yeah. It didn't make. Barely any money. Yeah, it didn't make it stupid. Back, yeah, made, it was made, on a budget of like 170 million, and it made like 100 and something. Million no, it was, it was less than that. It was a 60 million budget, and it made oh, really? 77, I believe. Ah, right, right, right. Uh, okay, but then like as a fashion project, the whole yeah. thing, the whole company, yeah, yeah is, is not going. And, and thank fuck, some rich dickheads. Well, kid this is just like, <laughs> yeah, this is the the first film that was directed by Travis Knight, who's the CEO of like. Yes, so yeah. this was a real. Yeah, passion on top of passion, and, and it shows. Travis Knight's an amazing director. We brought him up. I think we probably put him in one of our some of our sequels, possibly at some point. Gonna do yeah. Bumblebee, the only good Transformers film. Yeah, yeah. said it. What about the animated? Shut your face. But yes, good, good shout, Tim. Good shout. Our final pick, Matt. It's Transformers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, Unicron turns up and eats that planet. It's fucking terrifying. That's visually striking, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no. Oh, no. I'm gonna weep, aren't I? Gotta go to Japan. Um, Weeb's gonna weep. Weeb's gonna weep. I am also going against type a little bit. So animated film, I was like, of course I'm gonna do anime. I, I can't not. I think it's one of the most amazing things. You then opened a very dangerous door to countless, countless visually striking films. We oh, touched yeah. on Hayao Miyazaki in our ad break. Oh yeah. I know patrons, you're not here in the ad break, but I did, trust me. You did. And, and patrons, you can go listen to the full version. We, we, we did a whole episode on Studio Ghibli before. We did. Yeah. And I, I remember saying about how the tale of the Princess Kaguya is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. It's not my pick. <laughs> I fucking knew that was coming. Yeah. Uh, there are so many things. I, I, like Akira is one of the most important films to me ever. It's not my pick. Ghost in the Shell's not my pick. You mentioned the bike slide. Yeah. Canada's bike in the movie vehicle. All episode. of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. All of it could be so iconic. I've gone with something that I think is a film. is like, yeah, it's pretty good. And it's like, you mean it's not the best film you've ever seen? No, it's pretty good, though. Um, so you're not, not quite the same passion I had for Spider-Verse, then? Not in the same way, okay. but from a fucking visual point of view, I, I am... a fucking s- visual point of view? Yeah, fucking oh. visual. Uh, we're talking about uh, Makoto Shinkai's Weathering With You, which came out in 2019. It's set in 2021. <laughs> Idiots. I didn't know there was a pandemic coming. Um, yeah, so it's... it's uh, Tenkinoko, which means child of weather, but weathering with you is what we call it. Um, I can't imagine why it's not called child of weather. Child of weather. It's it's about two hours long, and it is. You've lost me. Stay with me, boy. It's two hours long. That's probably shorter than fucking into the Spider Verse. To be fair, and it's this. It's it's a weird one because. It pulls on uh, what we've discussed before about what's real and what's fantasy in the sense that it is both. It is very real in its depiction of Tokyo and this boy who runs away basically from home and lives his life in Tokyo and meets a girl who can control the weather and... Child of weather. Child of weather. It's fascinating how this is kind of a curse in that typical sort of almost folktale mythological fashion and that she can control the weather but at great personal cost, etc. And there's a sort of a price for it all. And Tokyo is just covered in rain the whole time. And people, they start commoditizing it, basically, and saying, people can pay us for, like, 
oh, I'm having a wedding. I really want it to be sunny. And she does a little prayer on this one. He steps through a Tory gate, does the prayer. Um, and this spotlight of rain, uh, you know, sorry, it, it, it parts the sky and this beam of light comes through. And it's like, boom, sunny for you for a day. And then back to, and it's floods and it's ridiculous and it's crazy. And then at times she's transported to this, you know, what, like, like a, a mile high in the sky falling through the air and it's terrifying. It's like and, bouncing from cloud to cloud. Yeah. That kind of stuff, yeah. There's so much going on in it in that sort of very, you know, uh, fantastical manner. Now, why have I highlighted this one? So, uh, the director's film before this was Your Name, which we fucking love Your Name. We have talk- talked about on the show before. And yeah. I could have easily highlighted Your Name because that is a visually stunning movie. Yeah. 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 I went with Weathering With You because I think it's taking all that they've learned in that movie and putting it into a different thing. And it's it's because... Oh, it sounds such a stupid thing to say. It's because of the weather. <laughs> Child I'm, of weather. I'm glad you said that, Matt, because I think so often you get like oh visually striking you think of anime you think of fucking mechs yeah. or big monsters or yeah. ridiculous titties all that yeah <laughs> robot boobies or whatever yeah <laughs> <laughs> matt's enthusiasm doesn't wane at all um but i'm glad you touched on the weather there because Clouds have never looked so pretty. Fuck me, man. Sunlight coming through those clouds, like that moment where she opens up that kind of <laughs> circle and just this illuminous beam. How in- do you animate light? Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is this right? the thing? Yeah, when you're an right? artist, the hardest thing for an artist to do is four simple elements. It's like, okay, I remember this one, like I talked when I was like doing art years and years and you go, it's like, right, the hardest thing you'll ever have to draw is either fire, water, air or like earth like like sand or grit or mm. dirt i was like well i'll just shade it all brown no that's just slurry yeah draw me dirt and it's like what yeah draw me wind yeah. Draw me light it's like i don't know how that's not <laughs> draw me fire uh, like this no that's cartoon bullshit <laughs> i don't i can't do that realistically it's and the fact that so much of it is you know anime is full of cartoon bullshit it is on purpose like we talked about Howl's moving castle before in the in the ghibli episode of course you have this ridiculous little cartoon fire that's talking and eating your eggshells <laughs> and being stupid and stuff. Yeah. It's not a realistic fire. No. But the beauty of Child of Weather... Child of Weather! Um, ...is that you really get a sense of the reality of it all. Mm. And the rain... It's going to sound weird. It's going to sound like Matt saying... Do it! It's sound, it feels wet. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the yes! rain feels wet and the clouds feel fluffy... And the the light is warm, and I can't explain of it because none of it's real. It's all it's all fictional. <laughs> it's such, it's yet... all just drawings, isn't it? <laughs> it is Tim, but it's such believable weather. But why am I crying? Um, yeah, no, yeah. And the thing is, <laughs> none the, of it's real, but the, I'm still crying. Yeah, because you've got the two factors: you've got the weather, and then it's juxtaposed with the the architecture. I have a book called um, Architecture and Anime, and it shows about how buildings and how Japanese cultures inspired by the power lines, all that sort of stuff, how it fed into it. And there are shots that you're looking at this thing with this grey ceiling of cloud. The rain's coming towards you. It's very like, like Ghost in the Shell sort of thing. And you see these neon signs and everything's reflecting. Like, this is too much to take in. And it's going for a sort of like... The characters look cartoony. They have an anime look to them, you know? They're, 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 they're for lack of a better word, warped, distorted sort of views of, of, of proportions. Their eyes are too big. Their chins are too narrow. They, they don't look real. And yet the world they live in feels real so they become real and it's like holy shit i can't do this and so uh, the the office um suga's office is just like it's chaotic nonsense it's 
it's an orgy of detail. It's papers everywhere. Books, you know, uh, papers, leaflets, fucking flyers, everything. It's too much. It's too much shit. And all of it fills in this character. And then again, as I say, then you had the inclusions of the natural elements, which are the film was a constant, like, you know, the, uh, a very um, Japanese cultural thing, but also, so it's quite European as well at times and, and a lot of different cultures as well. The, the juxtaposition between nature and society, the sort of technological advancements of our presence here, etc., and people and how our, our, our relationship with it and just how they've choose to represent everything. Oh, it's fucking stunning. I, I, yeah, I can't. I can't remember. And again, as a and and yet, no. I want to say, I want to say the most visually striking thing in that film, the thing I think of all the time, is the rain or the sunrise coming up, and it's just like, oh, that is blinding and beautiful. And I'm, I'm, I'm. It's it's the way it's described in like, uh, Interview with a Vampire, where they talk about the cinema and you see like the sun for the first time in 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 silent movie, because it's like, how did you? create this i've i i I don't understand how you could have filmed the sun that kind of thing you know and it's like well we painted it and made it fake but the truth is when i think of weathering with you oh no i think of that big mac (laughs) i hate you so much and i a friend of ours uh ben allen who's on the super power hour i i i I saw the film with him at the time i think and every now and again we're like thinking about that big mac (laughs) hey hey ben think about that big mac that's exactly the kind of conversation you two motherfuckers would have. Yeah, day weeps. <laughs> but but the point is that it's at one point the character's like he's run away, he's starving, and he's tired, and he just finds himself sitting in a McDonald's, and um, it's product placement basically, but it's done so beautifully. It's like oh god, and you know how you talk about like in uh, falling down, uh, Michael Douglas goes into the burger shop and he's like, what the fuck is this? You know, mm. he orders a burger with an Uzi in his hand, and. The, the the sort of sad, wilting, pathetic burger you get. Yes, the reality like... compared to the marketing image. Precisely. Even that is nothing compared to the <laughs> anime version, which she gives him the burger because she sees he's like not well off. And he's mm. like, it's a, it's a beautiful act of kindness. It's a simple little mm. thing. And as the box opens, the ASMR folio of it, and he goes, springs up. And it's like, yes. Oh my fuck. <laughs> yeah, the, the visualization, the bun. Like... <laughs> <laughs> the bun like inflates. I don't give too many shits about McDonald's, but fuck me. <laughs> it it makes no like as a person who's been McDonald's in my life like a handful of times, sure. couldn't give a fuck. I I don't get it, Matt. I'm not gonna lie. It's all about the weather in that movie. You absolutely that's fine. Nutter. That's that's the right response. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, Jack, what are you gonna pick for Into the Spider Verse? Oh, that bit where he, you know, where he, he has, has the fries. A drink. He's talking about yeah, the- having the fries and stuff. Yeah. No. What's up, danger? <laughs> it's the fucking weather, Matthew. You're not talking about that fucking Big Mac. <laughs> Big Mac is so good. Tim, have you seen I this Big really Mac? I want to order a Big Mac. I think I have seen this Big Mac. I have, yeah. There, there's your Big Mac. You need to see a, it. It's a pretty... Oh, there is. No, there. No, 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 no. Don't go to the dark side. It's just a fucking Big Mac. I mean, it's a pretty good looking Big Mac. <laughs> no! <laughs> Listen, we've lost them. We've lost them. Yes! Tim's gone. Oh, yeah. Glorious the chosen one, Tim. And I think it's, uh, yeah, the story's really nice. I think it's a really, I, I, I like it a lot as a film. I think it's not nearly as perfect or as, as amazing as your name is, but it's still really fucking cool. I think it's wobbles at times. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, people know about a Big Mac, Jack. People know about a Big Mac. Jack is now, <laughs> Jack's now Googling. There, there is a poster that is the, the, the amazing light shining through the clouds and the two main characters like flying up towards it beautifully. And then just like right a 30 in the foreground. Foot tall Big Mac. <laughs> Oh, no. I saw that film in the cinema and that Big Mac was enormous. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could lie in that. Oh, be great. 
It's like when I went to see Spider-Man 3 in IMAX and my housemates at the time didn't, I was like, got to go promptly. Yeah. You know, this the cinema's going to fill up. It's, it's opening weekend. And they dilly-dallied. And so I ended up watching Tobey Maguire's huge face on an IMAX screen <laughs> where Too I was close. sat three rows from the front. Oh, no! It's just so big. He's just so full of emotions. Just literally <laughs> close up of lips. Dig on this. And you're like, no! <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> just give me a Big Mac. Yeah, so the, the the powerful, powerful animation in terms of storytelling, but also marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Brand awareness. But also now you want a Big Mac, listeners. <laughs> Here's the problem. It's As we record this, it's like 22 minutes past 11 and it's on a Thursday at work in the morning and I'm still thinking I can fucking have a Big Mac right now. <laughs> I Don't can't say Probably not even open, but... Oh, and that's the thing. It will never live up to no. the idealized form. They no. never do. It's Everything in anime is always going to be too fucking cool, delicious, or goddamn sexual. <laughs> can't just, can't, Sometimes it's all three. Can't be, can't be real. Too delicious. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was my pick, and uh, the pick was a fucking big man. Well, the film, and there's a lot of things going there. No, it's great. It's a glorious film. Great, <laughs> but again, my, so my pick for visually striking films: Good Burger. <laughs> good Burger. <laughs> Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Oh god, that's visually striking. <laughs> also, another one with an amazing fucking soundtrack by Radwimps, but not the point. Yeah, that's a that's a good list of like you could literally watch all of those films over across like a weekend or a couple of days and mm. things and have like the best fucking time. Yeah. A very emotionally up and down yeah. fucking yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah probably, probably not in the order that we presented them. Like maybe, maybe uh, restructure it a bit. So. Yeah. Pad some of those out. Yeah. Mm. Have a Big Mac. Think about your life choices. You might need to. Yeah. <laughs> Shit, I actually don't know what order to watch them in because I think there's genuinely more emotional. That's a fucking roller coaster right there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't don't definitely don't go like Florida Project into Weathering with You into oh, the fountain. fountain. Oh yeah. god, that <laughs> is a spiral. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I think cheer yourself it... up with Spider Verse and then oh, yeah, yeah. it's like talking about spiciest too. food. You're like, don't have all of them in one fucking go. Are you mad? Yeah, yeah. pace that out. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you have any ideas for visually striking films, listeners, please do let us know on all the social medias. We are Sequelizers on Twitter, Instagram. Even Facebook, if you and your mum are still on Facebook for some reason. I don't know who is these days. Just, just old racist, Every, racist people I went to school with. Everybody's and on there. It's the question of who's actually using who's it. Who's actively on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm using it, unironically. But I'm literally, I don't know why. I think it's more <laughs> habit at this point. <laughs> also, just out of spite. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, if you'd like to come and chat with us more directly and join our lovely community on Discord, you can do that. By going to our website, sequelizers.com, there's links for the Discord, links for all the social media, links for the store, links for our live streams, everything you can find on sequelizers.com. Our live streams are still happening the, pretty much the last weekend of every month. We're going through our director showdowns and all that kind of stuff. We've done, we've done a lot of them. We've ticked off some big, big names in terms of directors, and we've had some fantastic guests on recently as well. Everyone from M for Verbal Diorama through to Rich from Unequal Sequel and Gadget from Modern Escapism and Reese Lippman and everyone in between. If you want to catch up on all of those, you can go find us on YouTube. Like I said, find the website and all that kind of stuff. And we have a lovely little uh, chat on the Discord, post-episode discussion and stuff like that. Probably the easiest way of getting hold of all three of us and getting involved in the conversation that way. If you'd like to follow me, I am JLW Chambers on all the social medias. I also host a podcast about SEO, PPC and digital marketing stuff called Search with Candor. You can find that on all the usual podcast places that you can find sequelizers. 
if that tickles your fancy. Matthew, how can people find you on the internet? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can go to theredrighthand.co.uk to read my reviews. You can go to cheeseman.com to see the things I make. And every other month, you can go to Sumo Drop via the BBG Wrestling Podcast to hear all my updates on the sumo world. Tim, if I wanted to be visually struck by you, where would I go? The easiest way to be visually struck by me is to use your eyes to look at my Twitter feed, trivia underscore lad, where I will be posting many stupid thoughts and also, I don't know, a lot of links to Sequelizer's content. (laughs) Big Mac, Big Macs. (laughs) Lots Lots of animated Big Macs. Yeah, well, just the one. Everything else is probably shit. Okay, great. So, yes, thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you can, as we mentioned at the top of the show, if you can support us, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. We very much appreciate it if you can. If you're unable to monetarily support it, we totally understand. We're somehow still in a fucking pandemic. It's 2022. Times are still fucking hard. Coming to you live from the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But if you are able to, please do share us with a friend. Let us be. Let people know on social media. Just mm. tell people to go and listen to the podcast. Rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and all that kind of stuff, mm. and help spread the good mm. word of sequelizers. Maybe, maybe you're in a McDonald's and you see someone looking really down. <laughs> and you we- buy you buy them a Big Mac and they open it up and it springs into life, and then they they open it up to get rid of the pickles because they don't like pickles. Yeah, fuck that shit. Gherkins are going. And then in. Uh, and then written in ketchup inside the Big Mac. Just says sequelizers.com. In sequelizers <laughs> red. We, we've got red for a reason. It's all yeah, about ketchup. Yeah. Valid. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We're back next week with more interseason goodness. We get closer and closer to season 10. Hey. We're only a few episodes away, which yeah. is terrifying and exciting in equal measure. Yeah. And we, uh, kicking off with something big. We always get a bit worried. And closing with something big. And some really bold Patreon picks from the executive producers through season 10 Fucking as well. Fucking Liberty. we've talked about a couple there's been rumours and and innuendo going around on the discord for some of the patron picks coming up in season 10 I'll let you know right now you are not ready for it the fucking state of it is just you've never sounded more London than that I know but it's outrageous (laughs) fucking outrageous honestly our our executive producers are fucking outrageous the fucking uh, yeah true the fact no Big Macs for you and we'll see you next week Thank you.